Welcome to Hackstack Level 3. We will now be giving you all the hacks you need to build deeper connections and stronger relationships with the people you care about. To get the most out of this show, please listen to the basic training of the first two levels, starting with episode number one. And now, let's start hacking. Here's your host, Coz. Hey, welcome back, everyone. Uh, it is good to be back in the saddle after uh, quite a long break, uh, straddled uh, the holiday season and New Year's and, and took some time off, and, and now I'm a bit refreshed, feeling good. And really ready to jump into level three of Hackstack. And at this level, level three, this is going to be all about uh, relationships and how to develop relationships, maintain relationships, and uh, foster and grow them, which is a super critical area of life. So level one and level two of Hackstack, those were kind of the basics. And if you're just tuning in and you have no idea what I mean by these different levels... <laughs> You can, you can go back and listen to that to get caught up to speed. But uh, level one and level two, those are, those are pretty much the basics. You know, goal setting, stress management, habit creation, routines, you know, dealing a lot with mindset, you know, motivation and just your, your general perspective on life. And a person truly needs to get that stuff uh, down pat or, or at least a high level of uh, understanding and comprehension if you want to be successful in whatever you're pursuing. And the interesting thing about level one and level two is uh, the burden of being successful in some of those categories pretty much lies squarely on your shoulders. I mean, if you think about, um, you know, we talk about the five F's a lot on this show, those being finances, fitness, family, friends, and faith. And um, level one and level two dealt a a whole lot with, uh, you know, the stuff that you can kind of control, you know, your finances and your fitness, right? So, if you're trying to save money, um, you're pretty much in control uh, to the most part. You know, obviously, if you're married, that changes the dynamic a little bit. But, you know, no one is usually forcing you to spend money. You know, no one is forcing you to or not to go to the gym. No one's forcing you to eat healthy or not eat healthy. Okay, so those are decisions that you can make. And to to a large degree, you have a great, great amount of control in those areas. You know, when we move on to level three, we're going to talk in particular about two of the Fs, family and friends. And that's a little different than the first two levels because when you're interacting with another human being, there is a lot of X factors, right? You don't know how they're going to react to a certain situation. You'll think some something you said or some action you took will be... Uh, received one way and it's received the completely opposite way and maybe that's received negatively so you then have to uh, maybe repair that damage or understand where that person's coming from and just interact with uh, with that person in general and that can be a pretty tricky uh, situation sometimes there are some minefields that you may have to navigate and some tough conversations that you may need to have So that's just a preface. That's kind of the direction we'll be heading uh, in level three. But we're going to slowly transition into that level. And we're going to we're going to start off with a, a little motivational clip. And I know I play these a lot and there is a certain downside to some of these. I mean, most of these will get you excited. Uh, There's not a whole lot of how to substance there. Uh, It just kind of keeps the fire going. And I I always think back to uh, a quote from Zig Ziglar uh, on the topic of motivation. And it goes a little something like this. It goes, people often say that motivation doesn't last. 
Well, neither does bathing. That's why we recommend it daily. So that's a humorous quote from Zig Ziglar highlighting uh, some of the shortcomings of just pure motivational speaking and things like that. But when used properly and when you realize that's not the only tool on your tool belt that you can use, uh, they can be very, very powerful. So I I consider some of these things, you know, like a, a mental cup of coffee. You know, they just give you a little burst when you need it. And they get you through and your habits and your routines uh, get you through the rest of the way. So keeping in form with the pattern of level one and level two of Hackstack, we are going to start off with a brief motivational clip. All right, here you go. Whenever there's an argument between your heart and your mind, follow your heart. The things that the heart can understand and feel that the mind cannot relate to. There are things that you feel that you know in your heart of hearts that's not logical, it's not practical, it's not realistic, but there's something in you that says, I can do this. If you do what is easy, your life will be hard. But if you do what is hard, your life will be easy. People that are hungry are uncommon people. A hungry have a vision of themselves when they leave here, leaving a legacy and not liabilities. How do you get to that next level? You must learn to dominate. You cannot compete. Domination, not competition. Anybody can do this, folks. Anybody can do this. This is not about a college degree. This is about massive amounts of action. Whatever you think you're worth, if you're not sure of your own value, your own goals, and what you want, the world will never reward you of what you want, your value, and your goals. People that are hungry are willing to do the things today others won't do in order to have the things tomorrow others won't have. People that are hungry are relentless. People that are hungry are unstoppable. People that are hungry refuse to give up. I'm willing to make this happen. No excuse is acceptable. I'm going to do whatever it takes. I can do it. If anybody's ever done it at any point in time in history, then what's possible for one is possible for me, and I'm going to do it. It's my time. It's possible. It's necessary. It's me. It's hard. It's worth it. I don't know what you want to do. Seemed like yesterday when I was the new kid on the block. Now at 68, I'm the old time. My mother, I remember the first home I bought her. This home she saw, she didn't know I had planned to get that home for her. I purchased the home and I said, Mama, I think I know the people who live there. You do? I said, yes, ma'am. I said, I'm going to stop in and say hello. And I drove there and I opened the door. And she got out and Mama at that time, around 76, she held my arm and we were walking toward the house. And we got to the door. And I, I couldn't hold it anymore. I reached in my pocket, I took the key out and I put it in the door. This is your home. Mama, I bought this to you. I pushed the door open. She stuck her head in the door. She said, anybody home? I said, no, Mama. 
Nobody's here. This is yours. If you want to think bad enough to go out and fight for it, to work day and night for it, to give up your time, your peace, and your sleep for it, if all that you dream and scheme is about it, and life seems useless and worthless without it, and if you gladly sweat for it and fret for it and plan for it and lose all your terror of the opposition for it, and if you simply go after that thing that you want with all of your capacity, strength and sagacity, faith, hope, and confidence, and stern pertinacity, with the help of God, you will get it. All right, there was some good stuff in there. I like the quote, if you do what is easy, your life will be hard. But if you do what is hard, your life will be easy. Now, there's a few different ways to take that, but I think it's pretty clear that it means if you do what is hard in the short term, your life will be easy in the long term and vice versa. And that fits hand in hand with all the things we talked about in level one and level two. And it sounds an awful lot like the slight edge, which is a must listen in episode three if you haven't done that already. Now, you may have noticed uh, a few new voices in that clip, one of which was a gentleman by the name of Grant Cardone. Now, Grant Cardone is is an interesting cat. He is a an entrepreneur, a real estate investor, a motivational speaker, salesperson extraordinaire. Actually, that's his forte. And just an all-around interesting character. I was first introduced to Grant Cardone while listening to uh, an episode of the podcast, Bigger Pockets, which deals specifically with real estate, which I'm into. And they interviewed this guy, and he was just off the charts with his insight, but also his his personality. And it, it was actually a, a little crazy to listen to him talk. Uh, you know, crazy like a fox kind of crazy. And that's what really caught my attention when I was listening to him and he mentioned a book that he had written and I figured I would go ahead and and check it out and then I I listened to that book and that really really changed the way I look at my goals and look at my plans and you know I thought I sort of had some of this goal setting stuff uh, down pretty good and then I listened to that book and it sort of changed my whole paradigm when it comes to goal setting. And normally I wouldn't recommend this book because it's so over the top and it it may be, let me me put it this way, it's not for the faint of heart when it comes to achievement and just going after your dreams. But since we're climbing the ladder and we're at level three now, I think think you guys are ready for it. So I'm going to play a clip here from Grant Cardone's book called 10X. And he has a really, really interesting uh, take on success and how he defines success and why it's important. And we'll talk about that just a little bit as we transition out of level two and into level three. Here is a clip by Grant Cardone from his book, 10X. As in multiply everything you do 10 times. Namely, you're going to need to take 10 times as much action as you think you're going to need to take, and your goals need to be 10 times bigger than they currently are. All right, here you go. However, I can assure you from personal experience that you'll suffer greatly by setting subpar targets. You simply will not invest the energy, effort, resources necessary to accommodate unexpected variables and conditions that are certain to occur sometime during the course of the project or event or your quest. 
Come on, man. It doesn't make any sense. Why spend your whole life making only enough money just to end up with not enough money? Why work out in the gym only once a week just to get sore and never see a change in your body type? Why get merely good at something when you know the marketplace only rewards excellence? Why work eight hours a day at a job where no one recognizes you when you could be a superstar and perhaps even run or own your own company or the whole place? All these examples require energy. Only your 10x targets ever pay off. So let's return to our definition of success, a term most people have never even looked up, much less really studied. What does it mean for you to have success or to be successful? You know, in the Middle Ages, the word often referred to the person taking over the throne, the word derived from Latin, seceder. Now, that's power, baby. Okay, succeed literally means to turn out well or to attain a desired object or end today. But back in the day, it meant to take over the throne. Success today then is an accumulation of events turning out well or desired outcomes being achieved. Look how far we've reduced the concept of success. Think of it this way. You wouldn't consider a diet successful if you lost 10 pounds and put on 12, right? No, it'd be a failed diet. In other words, you have to be able to keep success, not just get it. And this is what people don't understand. Did you want to keep it? You would also want to improve upon that success to ensure that you are able to keep and maintain it. After all, you can cut your grass once and be successful in doing so. But look, it's going to grow again. You'll have to constantly maintain that yard in order for it to continue to be defined as a success. This isn't about attaining one goal one time, but rather about what you have to do to persist in creating new levels of success and keeping that. Now, before you start worrying that you're going to have to work at this forever, let me assure you that you won't. That is, not if you set the correct 10x target from the beginning. Talk to anyone who is wildly, extraordinarily successful in any field, and they will tell you it never felt like work. Most people feel like they're working because the payoff is not substantial enough. It doesn't yield an adequate victory to feel like something other than just work. Your focus should be on the kind of success that builds upon itself, that which is perpetual and doesn't happen one time. See, this book is about how to create extraordinary achievement, how to ensure you will attain it, how to keep it, and then how to keep creating new levels without it feeling like you're working. Remember, a person who limits his or her potential success will then limit what he or she is willing to do to create and keep it. That's really, really important to understand. It's also vital to keep in mind that the subject of acquirement, in other words, the goal or target, doesn't matter as much as the mindset and the actions that are mandatory to accomplish the 10x goal. Look, whether you want to be a professional speaker, a best-selling author, top CEO, an exceptional parent, a great teacher, have a role model marriage, get in great shape, produce a movie that the world talks about for generations, whatever it is, you're going to be required to move beyond where you are now and commit to 10x thoughts and actions. Any desirable target or goal will always suggest something you have yet to accomplish. It doesn't matter how much you've already attained. As long as you are alive, you will either live to accomplish your own goals and dreams or be used as a resource to accomplish someone else's. I'm going to say that to you again. It's very important. And if you want to avoid being a slave, learn this. As long as you are alive, you will either live to accomplish your own goals and dreams or you will be used as a resource to accomplish someone else's goals and dreams. For the sake of this book, success can also be defined as accomplishing the next level of what it is you desire and in ways that will forever change how you perceive yourself, your life, the use of your energy, and perhaps most significantly, how others perceive you. The 10X rule is about what you have to think and do to get to a point 10 times more gratifying than you have ever imagined. This level of success cannot be achieved by normal levels of thoughts and actions. That's why even when most of those goals that you have are attained, they don't actually provide sufficient fulfillment. Average marriages, average bank accounts, weight, health, businesses, products, and the like, they're just average. Are you ready for the 10X adventure? 
The biggest mistake I have made in my life is failing to set targets high enough in both professional and personal aspects of my life. You know, it takes the same amount of energy to have a great marriage as it does to have an average one, just as it takes the same amount of energy and effort to make $10 million as it does to make $10,000. Sound crazy? It's not. And you'll see this when you start operating at 10x levels. Your goals will change, I promise you. And the actions that you take will finally start to match what you really are, who you really are, and what you're really capable of doing. You will start taking actions, followed by more actions, and will achieve what you've set out to do, regardless of the conditions, regardless of the situations you face, regardless of the objections and the obstacles, you'll hit your target. The single most important contributor to success, any success that I've created in my life, came as a result of operating with what I call the 10X rule. These concepts of goal setting, target attainment, taking action, they're not taught in schools. They're not taught in management classes. They're not taught in some leadership training or a weekend conference at the Four Seasons. No formula exists, at least that I could find in any book, that determines the correct estimation of effort. Let's face it, if you don't estimate the right amount of effort and then take that, you're not going to hit it. Talk to any CEO or any business owner, and he or she will tell you that sufficient levels of motivation, work ethic, and follow-up are clearly in shortage today. Whether your goal is to improve the planet's social condition or to build the most profitable company in the world, you will be required to use 10x think and 10x actions to get there. It isn't a matter of education, talent, connections, personality, lucky breaks, money, technology, being in the right industry, or even being in the right place at the right time. Dude, it's about 10x. In every case in which someone is creating massive levels of success, be it a philanthropist, entrepreneur, politician, a change agent, an athlete, a movie producer, I guarantee you he or she was operating using 10x during his or her ascent and attainment of their success. Another component that's required for success is the ability to correctly estimate the right amount of effort necessary for you and your team to even achieve the goal, to even be in the game of achieving the goal. By using the exact level of effort necessary, you will guarantee achievement of these objectives. Everyone knows how important it is to set goals. However, most people fail to do so because they underestimate the amount of action necessary to accomplish the goal. Setting the right targets, estimating the mandatory effort, and operating at that right level of actions are the only things that will guarantee your success and that will allow you to blast through the business cliches, competition, client resistance, economic challenges, risk aversion, and even fear of failure while taking concrete steps to reach your dreams. Massive action is actually the level of action that creates new problems. So that's what massive action is going to do. It's going to create new levels of problems. So if you ask me, Grant, what does massive action mean? Baby, massive action is when you create new levels of problems. And until you create problems, new problems, you're not operating at the fourth stage of action. For instance, when I started my seminar business at the age of 29, I employed the 10X rule. And I employed the 10X rule because I wanted to create a name for myself as somebody that was going to change selling for everyone. I was going to bring ethics to selling. I was going to bring a new wave of selling. Not all these things that you've read about in books about avoid, evade, manipulate, know their personality type, neuro-linguistic programming, and figure out, trick them. I wanted to create a new way to sell people. And I used the 10X rule to create a name for myself. I'd start my day at 7 a.m. or earlier in most cases, and I wouldn't get back to my hotel till 9. Okay, I was with clients at 7 a.m. I'd get back to my room sometimes 9 and 10 o'clock at night. I spent the day cold calling. You understand cold calling? I'm calling on multi-millionaires. Didn't know my name. I didn't know their name. I didn't even know the receptionist I had to get through. I'm walking in cold and calling on these guys and offering to do presentations for their sales and management teams. I'd visit as many as 40 organizations in a day. I was kicked out of 28 of them. Okay, 12 of them would take my time. Six of them would throw me out after they heard what I had to say, and six of them would become interested. I remember once being in El Paso, Texas, a city where I've never been. I knew no one. I'd never, ever flown into El Paso. I don't even think I knew where it was at on a map until I went there. Within two weeks, I had seen every single business in that market. 
Although I was unsuccessful in making everyone in that market know me, I certainly secured more business by taking massive action than I would have otherwise. A real estate agent at the time had asked to travel with me because he was interested in the business I was building and what I was doing, and he wanted to observe firsthand how I was growing my business. After three days of shadowing me, he admitted, Grant, there's no way I can do this for another day. I said, what are you you talking about? He's like, I can't even ride with you another day, dude. He's like, I'm only riding with you, and I'm exhausted. And I said, you know what? I'm onto something, man. If I can operate at this level, I can smoke everybody. I then approached every day like my life depended on the actions I took. I wasn't the smartest. I didn't have any money. Nobody knew me. I'll outwork them. I'm just going to operate at 10x, massive levels of action. I refused to leave that city without knowing I had done everything possible to meet every business owner there and offer my services, introduce myself, and get to know their sales team. Calling on companies, Cole, taught me more about taking massive action and then grooving that discipline in that was natural to me anyway and natural to each of you than any other activity I've ever done and has proved more valuable to me in all my other ventures. See, when you're taking massive action, you're not thinking in terms of hours or calls When you start operating at the fourth degree, your mindset shifts, and so will the results. You'll end up instigating opportunities that you'll have to address earlier, later, and in a different way than you would on a normal day, so a routine day will become a thing of the past. You understand? See, when you start operating at Massive, you instigate situations. You you, you trigger stuff and make things happen that you then have to say, oh, i got to be there earlier. i got to stay there later. The normal day just drops out. Routine things are a thing of the past. I continued this commitment to massive action until one day it was no longer an unusual activity at massive, but a habit. It was interesting to see how many people would ask me, dude, why are you still out this late at night? What are you doing here on a Saturday? Why are you calling me on a Sunday? What are you doing calling on us, you know, this late in the day? You never quit, do you? I wish my people worked like this. I wish I could hire some people like you. What are you on? Yeah, I was on something, all right. Dude, I was on my only choice. My only choice was massive action because retreat and average was not acceptable. I was treating success as my duty, obligation, and responsibility, and massive action was my ace. It was my ace in a hole. Signals that you're taking massive action or having people comment upon your level of action and admiring you for that. However, you can't think in terms of compliments or how many hours you work or even how much money you're making when you're operating at this degree. Instead, you have to approach each day as though your life and your future depend on your ability to take what? Massive action. When I started my first business, I had to make it work. I didn't have a choice. Look, there was nothing else I could do for a living. There was simply no two ways about it. This is what I had to do. If I wanted people to know me, about me, about what I had created, about what I thought would actually help not two or three people, but millions of people, then I had to take massive action, period. The problem wasn't competition. My problem when I started my business was one thing, obscurity. In my home today, we consider success vital to our family's future survival. We considered our obligation to create success. My wife and I are on the same page with this concept. We meet often to talk about why it's important to us and determine exactly what we have to do and what we're willing to do to keep secondary issues out of the way of the primary issues. Now, I'm not just talking about money here. I just don't mean success in monetary terms, but in every area, our marriage needs to be successful. Our health needs to be successful. Man, me as a spiritual being, I, I want to be successful as a spiritual being, and I want to know who I am and where I'm going. The contributions to the community, I want that to be successful. I want my future to be successful, even long after we're both gone. See, you have to approach the notion of success the way a good parent approaches duty to their children. It's an honor, an obligation. The kids are a priority. Good parents will do whatever it takes to take care of their children. Anything. They'll die for their kids. They'll get up in the middle of the night to feed their baby. They'll work as hard as they have to in order to clothe and feed them. They'll fight for them, even put their lives at risk to protect them. See, this is how you want to fight for success. Duty, obligation, responsibility. 
So quit lying to yourself. Look, it's fairly common for people who don't get what they want to provide justifications, even lie to themselves, by minimizing how valuable success is to them. This is the first thing I see people do. They just start lying. They diminish the importance of success as a way to justify them not having success. It's easy to spot this trend in society today within entire demographics and segments of the population. You can read it in books, hear it in church, and see it promoted in the schools. For example, children who can't get what they want, they'll fight for a little while, cry for a bit, and then convince themselves they never wanted it in the first place. Well, look, man, you're not a kid anymore. It's entirely okay to admit that you wanted something that didn't come to fruition. Don't give up on it, man. Fight for it. Make it your duty. In fact, this is the only thing that will help you eventually reach your goal. There's going to be obstacles that you're going to encounter along the way. And if you give up when you get hit by them, you're not going to get anything. Even the most fortunate and well-connected people among us must do something to put themselves in the right place at the right time in front of the right people. You understand what I'm saying? Even the lucky and the fortunate, the well-connected, have to put themselves in the right place at the right time in front of the right people. As I mentioned at the end of the previous chapter, luck is just one of those byproducts of those who take the most action. I get lucky the more I do. The reason why successful people seem so lucky, and don't be a hater, is because success naturally allows for more success. You know, success just perpetuates success for some reason. People create magical momentum by reaching their goals, which then compels them to set and eventually even reach loftier goals. And you look at them and say, oh, they're lucky. Unless you're privy to the action that they're taking, you don't see or hear about the number of times the supposed successful went for it and failed. After all, look, the world only pays attention when people are winning. Colonel Sanders, who made Kentucky Fried Chicken famous, pitched his idea more than 80 times before anyone bought the concept. It took Stallone three days to write the script for Rocky. Three short days. The movie grossed $200 million. And when he wrote it, he had no money, couldn't afford to heat his apartment, even had to sell his dog for $50 just to buy food for himself. See, you don't see the failures. You see, boy, it was easy for him to write that three-day script. Walt Disney was laughed at for his idea for an amusement park. And yet now people all over the world spend hundreds of dollars a day on tickets that they save for their whole lives just to have a family vacation at Disney World. Don't be confused by what looks like luck. Lucky people don't make successful people. People who completely commit themselves to success get lucky in life. Someone once said, the harder I work, the luckier I get. If you're able to repeatedly attain success, it becomes less of a success and more of a habit and almost everyday way of life for the successful. Successful people are then described as having a certain magnetism, some type of X factor or magical charm that seems to surround them and follow them. Why? Because successful individuals approach success as a duty and obligation and a responsibility. It's their right. You become a magnet for success when you make it your duty. Let's say there's an opportunity for success in the vicinity of two people. Okay? Do you think it's going to end up with the person who believes success is his duty, who reaches out and grabs it, who believes they're a magnet that it's due them, it's theirs, or only one of the two of you can get it, or to the one who approaches it as take it or leave it kind of attitude? I think you know the answer. The duty's going to get it. Take it or leave it. Even if he gets it, he's probably going to blow it once he gets it and won't be able to repeat it. Look, despite the often used phrase, there's no such thing as an overnight success. You cannot show me one overnight success. Once we dig in, we're going to find out they did a lot to get that overnight success. Success always comes as a result of earlier actions, always. No matter how seemingly insignificant those actions are or how long ago they may have taken, somebody had to do something. Anyone who refers to a business, product, actor, band, anything, any dream, concept, or idea as an overnight success neglects to understand the mental stakes that certain individuals have to make in order to forge the path. 
They don't see the countless actions taken before these people actually created and acquired their much-deserved victory. Even those born into royalty had to do something. Look, success comes about as a result of mental and spiritual claims to own it, followed by taking necessary actions over time until that state is acquired. If you approach success with any less gusto than your ethical and moral duty, obligation, and responsibility to your family, your company, and your future, you will most likely not create success and have even more difficulty keeping it. I guarantee that when you, your family, and your company begin to consider or approach success as a responsibility and an ethical issue, then everything else will immediately start to shift. Although ethics are certainly a personal issue, most people will agree that being ethical is not necessarily limited to telling the truth or stealing or not stealing money. Our definition of ethics or your understanding of ethics could certainly be expanded from just stealing money or not stealing money, perhaps even include the notion that you are required to live up to your potential with which you've been blessed in order to be truly ethical. I even suggest to you that failing to insist upon abundant amounts of success in whatever area of life, or in fact all areas of life, is somewhat unethical. To the degree that electing to do your personal best each and every day is ethical, then failing to do so is a violation of your ethics. You must constantly demand success as your duty, obligation, and responsibility, and I'm going to show you how to guarantee that this happens in any business, any product, any industry, at any time, despite all obstacles, and in whatever volumes of success you desire. Remember, success must be approached from an ethical viewpoint. Success is your duty, obligation, and responsibility. So there you go. That's a taste of Mr. Grant Cardone. Man, <laughs> he is pretty intense. And that is just a small sampling of, of that entire book. So if that uh, got you thinking, you may want to go ahead and get that book and uh, check it out. It's, it's, it's pretty awesome. But the thing that really got me about that book, actually two things. Uh, first thing is his concept of massive action. Uh, it just goes to show you if you have even just a mediocre plan and you just put into action tons and tons of effort and action, uh, that can make up for even a subpar plan. So just going out there and hustling and doing things that others are, are unwilling to do, more often than not, you'll probably come out on top if you put forth uh, a monumental effort like Grant Cardone was referring to. But the thing that really, really stuck with me the most was how he talks about success being a moral obligation, which on the surface almost seems superficial because when most people hear the word success, they're thinking only of money. But uh, Grant Cardone goes out of his way to uh, explain that success is more than just a, a dollar amount. And his definition of success really ties into a lot of things that we talk about on the show and being well-rounded. And, you know, you have to be both good with your finances and your health and your relationships, which transitions nicely into our next topic of building and fostering relationships. And to get into that topic, we are going to play a clip from The School of Greatness, which is Lewis Howe's podcast. Uh, this is an older episode where the uh, featured guest was Vanessa Van Edwards. So Vanessa Van Edwards talks about a lot of interesting things like body language, different personality types, you know, introvert, extrovert. You know, she talks about how to be, quote unquote, the most memorable person in the room. 
how to be charismatic. She'll talk about hacking charisma. But the essence of all of this is just improving your general people skills. So we're going to listen in on this uh, clip. And I especially want you to pay attention when uh, Lewis Howe starts to ask her a few questions and she asks him a few questions. There's a really interesting uh, conversation in the middle of this clip that we can chat about afterwards. But check out this clip and then I'll have a very easy homework assignment for you that I think will be pretty fun and will be a nice step in the right direction toward uh, developing relationships with people. So let's check out this clip. Welcome back, everyone, to the School of Greatness. We've got Vanessa Van Edwards on today. What's going on, Vanessa? Hey, how are you? Doing well. And uh, I'm very excited to learn and discover more about what you talk about, which is the science of understanding people and people skills. And for me... As a stupid kid growing up in the, you know, stupid classes and having a tutor, uh, not being able to read or write, almost flunking out of school, having to cheat on all of my homework, all of my tests constantly just to pass so that I could continue to be in school and play sports, which was my goal as a child growing up who had extreme difficulties learning about books and school. I had to survive by understanding how people work and I had to survive by learning how to connect with people to enroll them in whatever I was up to in staying in class and being friends with me and you know the girlfriends I wanted I had to have developed these people skills so that people would accept me as a human being and I realized early on that that was the most valuable skill I could have learned and I'm constantly learning and developing but why aren't we taught this early on? And you're an expert in understanding the science of people. You have scienceofpeople.com. Why aren't we taught this early on? Why is there so much focus on other ways of learning than actually understanding people? Yeah, I completely agree with you. I also develop people skills out of sort of a necessity. Um, I think that schools focus on technical skills, you know, the math, the science, and sometimes even creative technical skills like graphic design or painting or dancing. Um, Because those seem, especially before the research was really robust, I think nowadays it's much more robust, but even 10, 15 years ago, people skills was so in a gray area where it didn't feel like you could write a textbook about people skills. People, I think, really believed you can't really teach people skills. You're sort of born with it or you're not. <laughs> right. And what we've come to learn is that is actually not the case, that just like math or science, you can study people even in a black and white manner. It's sort of an art and science of people skills, but it is both. It is teachable. You can have textbooks on people skills. Now, I, I'm not, it's not my goal to write a textbook by any means, but I think that that's why is it was, it's too intimidating. They thought that technical skills were easier. People would just pick up people skills as they grew up. Mm, interesting. Now you said did you got it. You started developing this out of necessity. You said yourself, or yeah, yeah. So I am. I joke with my students that I'm a recovering awkward person. Uh huh. 
Um, and I'm, I'm a situational in, introvert. So, um, basically what that is, and I, I don't know if people listening will resonate, this will resonate with you, but I never really fit into the extrovert or introvert category. Um, whenever people would ask me that, or I would take like personality tests. And so basically, um, what the research has found is there's this middle category called an ambivert, which is that in certain situations you regress into either extroversion or introversion. And so what I quickly learned is in learning environments, I'm an extrovert. I love learning. I love asking questions and being curious. However, in bars, nightclubs, parties, ooh, I I just shut down into this the most awkward person you could possibly meet. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I it's you know, I used to live in Los Angeles and it's a big, much bigger party scene. I now live in Portland. And the reason for that is because Traditionally, cool places make me feel really uncool. Mm. So um, I learned people skills because it's kind of an essential part of business, especially if you're an entrepreneur. Even also socially, like my friends would be like, let's go to, you know, I want to go to a bar for my birthday. And I'd be like, what? No, no. And that's, that's crazy. Like, I, of course, I wanted to celebrate friends. So I developed it because I realized that I would avoid things that actually could possibly be fun. But because of my own lack of people skills, I was like holding myself back. So it was, that's why I decided I had to sort of figure out, and I have more of a black and white brain. I like to know formulas. I like mm. to know percents and rules. So um, I- Very analytical. Yeah. And so I went to the, the science-based people skills approach. I was like, there has to be a way- <laughs> To do this, there has to be a formula for people skills. And it's not quite a formula, but it's close. Okay. So you've developed a formula. Yes. I developed a formula that I myself developed originally for myself. I mean, before, um, I've always been an entrepreneur. I I started my first business in high school and then continued all the way through college. And then when I left college, I did did my business full time. But originally, it wasn't um, people skills. It was, um, I was writing advice with teens and parents, uh, connecting teens to parents as like kind of a like a teen helpline for parents, basically. Uh-huh. And um, I, so I developed it because I had to have people skills to push that business out. And um, once I developed this formula for myself, people around me started to notice the difference. And they asked me, you know, what are, what are you doing? Like, how, how are you able to do this? And I'm like, I just hack charisma. Like I, you know, it's, it's a, it's a formula. Tell me a little bit more about body language. I know Amy Cuddy, I think it's Amy Cuddy is the, the one who yeah. did the TED talk. And, and I don't know if you follow her stuff or if you guys are friends or similar topics, but how, uh, how can we increase confidence in ourselves through a couple of body language things that we can do or, or tools that we can take on for ourselves? How do we increase our confidence to go in and really like shake someone's hand and, or just be talking to someone face to face so that we're not closing down our body language and kind of shutting down? How can we stay confident and poised in the moment and under any situation? Yeah, I love Dr. Cuddy's research. Um, Dr. Cuddy's a researcher at Harvard Business School, and she has really pioneered um, not only – we knew we knew that a lot of our communication was nonverbal. In fact, they find a minimum of 60% of our communication is nonverbal, a minimum. It's up to 93%. So we already knew that. What Dr. Cuddy has done is taken that a step further and figured out not only how important it is for our first impression, so how much it changes other people's perception of us, but also how it changes our own perception of ourself. So how our body language changes our actions and our hormone levels, which is huge. We didn't used to think that body language could change our physiology. 
So what she found was that if you stand in confident body language or power posing is what she calls it, Mm -hmm. um, your testosterone levels increase and your cortisol levels drop. You also tend to gamble more often. You feel luckier, um, which actually in, in business usually proves correct for us. Um, especially because we usually miss opportunities when we don't do that. And this is for both men and women that the more testosterone we have coursing through our bloodstream, the better performer we are, the better athlete, the faster we think, we have less dry mouth, we answer questions better, we perform better, we have increased endurance. It's good for everything. Um, this is for both men and women. Whereas low power, when we go into low power posing, we lose testosterone, so we lose the exact hormone we need to perform well, and we increase our cortisol levels. Cortisol, simplified, is the stress hormone. It causes us to gain weight, makes us have dry mouth, it makes us think slowly, lowers our metabolism. It's exactly what we do not want coursing through our body when we're about to go into something important. So before you even walk into the room, before you even think about showing your hands and eye gazing and reading facial expressions and triggering dopamine, before you even do any of that, you can set yourself off on literally the right foot physiologically by getting your hormones in check, the hormones that you want coursing through your body. And the way that you do this is the more space your body takes up, the more testosterone you produce. So if you think of your body inflating, like as if someone were to inflate your body like a balloon, You want to roll your shoulders down and back so your neck is as long as possible. You want to keep your arms loose by your sides, so not pinned to your sides, especially if you can have them gesturing or on the table. Um, You want to have your feet firmly planted hip width or further apart, and this is for both sitting or standing. And you want to have your chest, your chin, and your forehead slightly aimed up. So as opposed to straightforward or rolled in, you have this sort of if you must a Superman pose or a Wonder Woman pose, um, those, that is an extremely testosterone producing position. And the problem is, is most people say to me, yeah, great. I know this good posture. I have no problem with posture. And then I tell them, do you ever, ever check your cell phone? And they're like, yes, you hold your cell phone in front of you you literally go into, you roll into low power body language, which is rolled shoulders in, arms across your chest or pinned tightly to your sides, chest, chin, and forehead aimed down. That is low power body language. So that pra- is- and the more you check your phone, the more you're practicing low power body language. Yeah. Wow. So we don't even realize before we walk into a meeting or a pitch or a conference and we're checking our phone, we're actually producing the stress hormone huh. and losing testosterone. So now is it easy, is it easy to, you know, say I'm checking it and then I, can I go into a power pose, then go back to checking a power pose, checking a power pose? Will that work or be yes. effective? Or if I'm in a, you know, checking my phone constantly, it's going to be hard to get back up. So the good news is, is it's really easy to fix this once you know what to do. All I want you to do is, A, first of all, if you have a big meeting or big pitch, I would recommend bringing a magazine or newspaper to read. That's a really easy way to power pose before walking into something. If it's really big, really big one. But in everyday normal use, all I tell people is to pivot your phone out. So instead of having it right in front of your chest, just pivot it out so all of a sudden your shoulders roll back. Your arms are then out by your sides or taking up more space. Huh. You hold your chest, chin, and forehead up. So as long as you're checking your phone out, which is actually very easy to do, right? It's, it's, right. it's which simply get lazy. Pivoting. Yeah. It's simply pivoting your arm. Just that slight change is going to rapidly and radically change your hormone levels. That's a super easy thing to do as long as we're aware of it. Wow. Interesting. This is fascinating. How do they become the most memorable person in that event or room or where any setting, how does someone 
show up in such a powerful or memorable way that more people remember that person than they remember anyone else? I think that that's a, that's the question of a lifetime, right? Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) I I don't think that there's one answer. I think it's sort of designing, as I say, your your unique brand of charisma, whatever that is to you. Like for some people, some of my students, it's it's a kind of quiet power that they, that they harness for other people. It's sort of the life of the party. Um, that's the area that they're most comfortable with honing that. So there's no one answer, but there's definitely things that, that can help. Um, I think that the, one of them is, um, something that I teach in one of my influence courses on the power of dopamine. Mm. So in our brain, there's a, a, a chemical that's released when we feel pleasure or win a reward. And that's called dopamine. And so what happens is basically when we're feeling really happy, like let's say that we win a race or someone tells us we win the lottery, even just thinking about winning the lottery, our brain is like, yes, mm, I like it. It's like this little, you know, pleasure (laughs) bath. And that's because dopamine is being pumped into your brain. So what's important to understand about being memorable, and I take a very science-based approach to people, is understanding how to give people that feeling by triggering dopamine when you're with them. And there's a lot of different ways to trigger dopamine um, in addition to rewards. But some of the easy ones are um, letting people leave their social scripts. So typically when you are with someone, even in a coffee shop, a networking event, a conference, whatever, you have these like same conversations you have over and over and over again. So you know, it's like, what do you do? Where are you from? How was your day? Right? You have like the same, how'd you get into what you do? That right. kind of thing. Um, right. You hear those questions over and over again. And we just have the exact same answers. So what happens is the brain, when you observe the brain in these situations, it's very, very low activity. Very little is being simulated in the brain. You're not critically thinking. You're not doing much, right? You're literally on autopilot. Right. So the brain gets quite bored. So the way that you become memorable is by activating their brain in new ways, especially in pleasurable ways. Like, you know, you don't want to activate the brain by getting someone into anger. That would not be, you'd be memorable, but not in a good way. Um, You want to spark their imagination is what I'm hearing. Yeah. Imagination is almost a synonym for dopamine. Um, But one one thing that I encourage people to do is to try, um, I call them killer conversation starters. I have a a whole list of them on my website. that are just very dopamine worthy. And the reason they're dopamine worthy is because A, they're typically, people are not asked these questions before. So it just changes up the brain pattern. B, um, they usually, they're encouraging, they're eliciting a positive experience of some kind. And people love to think about their positive experiences. And three, anytime someone talks about themselves, it's like they're being rewarded. One of our favorite things to do is to talk about ourselves. Um, so anytime you ask a question that's more than where are you from, what do you do? Like a two line answer, you're triggering, triggering dopamine. So those are like, there's sort of three aspects to it. So like one of the, can I I ask you a question that I think could could be a potential one that people could use? Yes. And you can let me know. And I want you to answer it first. And then I want you to let me know what what came up for you. I see. I'm already excited. You just okay. triggered my dopamine. Awesome. I love it. So it doesn't even, I don't even have to ask the question now. No. Even, even uh, just telling me that you're about <laughs> to ask me something very interesting and different. I already am excited about it. Mm, okay. My question, I guess I would have two different questions, but I'll start with this one. What has, have you been thinking about most re- recently? What's been on your mind most recently? Mm. The top of your mind most recently. 
probably this idea of leveling up or going pro. Hmm. So something that I have been thinking about in my business and my personal life is how am I at right now? I personally think I, I, in sports terms, I kind of think that my business is on the JV team. Mm. Um, so I'm, I'm playing like I, I passed, I'm, I'm on the JV team, which is great, but I kind of want to make varsity. So I am trying to think about how can I level up or go pro? Is that hiring a trainer? Is it doing more drills? Like what is it that's going to help me make varsity mm. next year? Um, 2015. So that's really where my brain is at. Interesting. Now, what do you, what do you think it's going to take from you to become on the varsity? That's the question. Um, I think it's going to be from, I think I'm going to have to try some new formats. So typically, um, I, I teach with online videos and PDFs in a very specific way. And I think that I need to get out of that format and really like do, you know, use analytics. So split testing on my courses, trying different price points, different sales pages. So it's going to be getting out of my comfort zone, which mm. is not so fun. Do you not like staying so in your, do you like staying in your, whatever introverted spectrum box that you're in? I like doing things <laughs> that I know will work, but that's not how you grow, right? Like I know this works on a JV level. Great. Uh -huh. But I don't want to, yes, I could stay on a JV level, but I don't want to stay there. Okay. Yeah. The next step is making the bench of the varsity. Right. Exactly. <laughs> like that. Would you rather play at this level or make the bench? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's that, um, Huh. And that's like a great, that's a great, great killer conversation starter. And by the way, when you do that for someone, I call it giving them a mindgasm, um, where basically like you're like, like you're blowing their mind with like letting them explore something different. They're literally creating new neural maps. That's what happens when you're asked a question that you're not normally asked. Interesting. So that one is a fantastic one. I let, love it. Let me, let um, me, let me go one step farther because do it. I'm, I'm in coaching mode now and this is what I like to do. Uh, <laughs> who are two or three of the people that you're inspired by in your space that are on the varsity at a level that you want to be at? Oh, that's easy. Um, I think that, uh, Marie Forleo is mm -hmm. a business owner who just kills it. Yep. Uh, I very much respect that she's extremely focused. Like she doesn't really get distracted by lots of things she could do. She does what she should do, which I think is a big one. Um, and, she gets it done. She gets it done. Like huge, huge standards for herself. And the other one is probably Derek Halpern, who's like a partner of hers, who also has a, a really awesome blog called Social Triggers. Mm -hmm. And he um, is very good at using analytics to make his choices from what I read. Um, and mm -hmm. that's something that I need to do more of. You're, you're talking to two, you're talking about two of my best friends. No way. <laughs> I talk to Derek almost every week and I've been, uh, you know, working with Marie for the last four years. So, uh, you are picking the right people because they are definitely a players on the highest varsity team there is. So and super good, authentic, good, mo good models to, uh, to be inspired by. Now, let me ask this question. What is it that they're doing that you have yet to step into? Um, definitely the analytics marketing that Derek has done. He's implemented some, like, like, obviously he's, he's split testing a lot on his landing pages, on his funnels. Uh, I, I kind of guess, you know, I, I put it all up there, but I kind of guess that's not good. Um, so he has that like syst systematized, I think, um, from, from reading his blog and watching his videos. Um, and Marie has a very 
high quality, high price product. So I have products that range between $49. I have a couple of free products and I have $49 to $199. And so I know that 2015 is going to be about making my high-end product. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. We'll Can I ask more. one of you? Sure. Go ahead. Okay. This is my favorite one. What is your personal passion project right now? My life is my personal passion project. Uh, my dream as a child was always to be an Olympics uh-huh. And I'm currently on the USA national team for a sport called team handball. So if the Olympics were in the United States next year, I would most likely be automatically qualified. Uh, I would be on the team that would be automatically qualified to go to the Olympics. So I'd be an Olympian. Uh, but since it's not, it's in Rio in 2016, we've got to win the Pan American games in order for me to qualify. And I've got to stay healthy and I've got to make the team and, you know, and do my job. So my personal passion project is fulfilling a childhood dream of being an Olympian. Wow. See, like that's something that I did not know about you, um, which I think is awesome. Um, and, and I love it. I, I didn't, I didn't know that about you, which is a, that's a, that's a big one. That's a big personal project. <laughs> you, you dream really big, which is awesome. <laughs> no, it's all about, uh, the dreams and imagination. And for me, I, I feel like my life is passionate projects. Everything I do is a passion project because that's how I want to live my life. I don't want it to be, uh, something that I'm never, I don't want to do something ever that I'm not passionate about. So everything I do, all the people I connect with has a purpose, has a meaning towards the imagination of achieving what I want. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, is that your personal mission? My mission is to serve 100 million people to help them how to make a full-time living around doing what they love. So mm-hmm. I want people to be able to develop the lifestyle first create this lifestyle of passion, whatever their passion products are constantly living in their passion and then be able to monetize a full-time income around that. And they don't have to be multimillionaires, but teach them the tools on how to make a full-time living doing what they love. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I love it. I think, man, that that's, that's a good reason for being, that's a great reason to get up in the morning. Oh man, I love it. Yeah. So everything I do is to, to learn and, uh, discover and create and then share what I, what I learned. That's why this podcast is here. It's to bring on the most inspiring people who know the most, know way more than me, share with a broad audience so that they can get amazing results in their life. Well, I hope that this idea of interacting around dopamine, which is a very different way of, of approaching interactions, especially uh-huh. at conferences and networking events. I hope that kind of, it explains the reason why You'll sometimes be with someone and you're like, God, it felt so good to be with them. Mm, yes. I just love talking to them. MIT Media Lab is the one who, who pioneer a lot of this research. Basically, what they found is that people don't remember what you said. They don't. If you could have the most perfect elevator pitch in the world, the best, most impressive answers, they do not remember that. They don't remember that. They don't remember what you looked like or what you said, what, what you uh, wore. Mm-hmm. What they remember is what it felt like to be with you. They remember, you know, weeks later, was it an overall good, medium, bad experience? And so triggering the brain is a way to make sure that it's a good experience. Yeah. And something I talk about, I definitely didn't make this up. I heard it from someone, but uh, people people don't care about what you know until they know about how much you care, something like that. And um, for me, that's been something that I pretty much like have in the back of my head constantly because I know I wasn't that book smart. So I was like, as long as people know that I care, I'm good to go. It's true. <laughs> because I don't need to be smart. I can just show how much of a heart I have and how much I want to love on people. And uh, that's more valuable than being a scientist in my mind. So Yeah. I think also, you know, 
I think EQ and PQ, people skills, people intelligence and emotional intelligence, even social intelligence, SQ, is way more important when you're talking about being an adult. Now, okay, mm, not true in elementary school, high school, college. Okay, that is, it's much more like 50%, unfortunately. Mm. But when you get into the real world, that is not the case at all. It's much more about those other three kinds of intelligence um, that, that we were missing growing up. Exactly, exactly. This is fascinating. So basically what I'm hearing you say is if you can give people the feeling of winning a lottery ticket when you meet them, you're going to be the most memorable person in the room, whatever that That's feeling right. is. That's right, exactly. Interesting. So be a walking lottery ticket for other people. Be a walking lottery ticket and you can do that with Killer Conversation Starters. Okay, that was a pretty interesting interview on the topic of people skills and emotional intelligence. And I thought it was pretty interesting how they talked about how uh, as you get older, uh, emotional intelligence and people skills become uh, more important. You know, when you're younger, you know, math, reading, science, all that good stuff. But uh, as you get older, it's way, way more important to have really, really good people skills. So how does one get good people skills? Well, like anything, you need to practice those skills. And that's what we're going to do for your homework assignment. Now, before the clip started, I told you to pay attention to about the middle of the conversation where uh, Lewis Howe started asking Vanessa about her life and her business. And then she was asking him questions in turn. And I thought those were really good questions. And she referred to those as killer conversation starters. And it's true, right? We're sort of on autopilot when we uh, talk to people in our everyday lives. You know, what, what's the most common question you, you probably ask in a day? How was your day? How was your weekend? How are you doing? Right? Those are the questions. And what is always the response? Uh, it's usually fine or good or something short and sweet like that, right? We're, we're on autopilot. We're cruising. You know, it's automatic. But even asking some of these killer conversation starters automatically gets people thinking, uh, they take notice, and, and they remember you. And there were two conversation starters in there that I think are particularly easy and uh, pretty helpful. Um, one was given by Vanessa Van Edwards, and her, her question was, what is your current passion project? Now, that's kind of a cool question. Uh, it's a little corny, and I don't even know if I could personally ask that question because I'm already thinking, well, what's the what's a passion project? You know, I, I can already see someone like scratching their head with that question. And, and, you know, maybe that's good to shake someone out of their, their, their rut of thinking. But the question I like the most is the one that Lewis Howes offered. And that was, what has been on your mind the most recently? And I thought that question was so good that after I first heard that podcast, I actually had a conference to go to for work. And it was probably less than a week after I had heard that podcast for the first time. So here I am at a conference and I don't want to necessarily go through the same song and dance with the same questions that everyone else is asking. So I would actually ask this to a couple people. And I even gave it a little setup before I asked the question so it wouldn't sound so off the wall. But I'd be in a conversation and I'd say, you know what, I just... I just listened to a podcast and it was talking about how to stick out at conferences and they had this this question that they asked and I kind of wanted to, to throw it by you just to get your thoughts on it. So I would even set it up like that and then I would go ahead and ask, just tell me, what's been on your mind the most lately? And I think I, I maybe asked two people this question 
And why did I only ask two people? That's because the conversation was so long and so in-depth and so engrossing that there wasn't time to talk to anyone else. And that's just the nature of that question. If you think about it, uh, it can go a whole bunch of different ways. But no matter which way it goes, that direction will be chosen by the person you ask. And you're basically saying, hey, I'm, I'm curious about what's going on in your life. And the person can take that, you know, they can talk about maybe something burden that's weighing them down or some, some exciting news that just happened. And that can lead to a whole bunch of other uh, interesting conversations. And that's the first step of people growing closer to each other, people bonding, friendships developing, uh, relationships deepening. It's asking these questions that are not you know, such a surface level question like, how are you doing? And that's just the power of questions. Uh, it's, it's an amazingly strong way to break down walls and get to know people and strengthen relationships. So that's going to be our warm-up homework for this, this whole, whole segment. So this is the starting point. So here's your homework assignment. I want you to ask that specific question. Again, the question is, what has been on your mind the most lately? I want you to ask that question to two people, okay? One is someone close to you, a sibling, a spouse, a child, um, something like that. And one that's you sort of know, maybe an acquaintance or a coworker, uh, just to just to see where the conversation leads. So two people, one really close and one person maybe you consider more of an acquaintance. But get that under your belt. It may feel a little awkward at first, uh, but it shouldn't. And if it does, you need to ask it anyway because it needs to not feel awkward. You need to lean into the awkward, right? You have to be comfortable with that because getting more comfortable with some of these um, these questions will make some of the other topics we'll cover in later episodes a whole lot easier. So anyway, that's it. Relatively straightforward homework. Uh, make sure you do it and interact with a few folks out there. And uh, hopefully you have some pretty deep and interesting conversations and that's just a uh, testament to the power of questions. Now, a uh, pretty short episode compared to other ones. I do have some extra credit for you if you want to stick around where I dive a little bit deeper into the topic of questions and how powerful they can be. So if you want to stick around for that, you're more than welcome to. Otherwise, I'll catch you guys on the next episode. Thanks for listening. See ya. Thanks for listening. We hope you found a few nuggets of wisdom that you can apply to your life. Until next time, take action. Keep hacking and stacking your way to success. There's nothing wrong with your mobile device. You're venturing into deeper meaning and higher learning. It's time for Extra Credit. Extra Credit. All right, welcome to Extra Credit. Thanks for sticking around. We're going to talk about questions a little bit more. Quick side note on the homework assignment, uh, more of a side benefit. You know, if you're going to ask someone that question, what's been on your mind the most lately? There's a natural self-reflection that goes on there. So you may want to think about how would you answer that question if you were asked that. And that will help you a little bit when you go out and ask other people that question.
So what this extra credit is really about is I am going to show you, or actually I'm going to have someone else explain and show you how to get like really, really good at asking the right questions, how to get, I mean, I, mean, I would consider it how to be an expert at asking questions. Because what you start to realize when you deal with people is if you get into a discussion with someone and you you kind of disagree with someone and you just tell people where they're wrong, it's not as receptive as much if you could just ask questions and sort of get them to understand on their own the errors of their way. Or if you can get them to understand something, you know that they already know, they're just not I don't know the the best phrase for they're not connecting the dots. And if you can ask questions to connect the dots for them, that goes a heck of a lot longer and goes a lot further than you just telling someone that they're wrong. And that's what this uh, extra credit is all about. So before I play this for you, I want to give you a little backup uh, and a little personal story about myself. Uh, as you guys know, I am a Christian. I believe God exists and all of that good stuff, as I have mentioned before. Uh, raised in the church, but there was there was a time when I had, I shall we say, a crisis of faith. I, I wasn't sure if what I was believing was true. I did a lot of study, a lot of research. I've <laughs> probably read more books written by atheists than even atheists have read. And as part of my spiritual quest to sort of uncover the truth, I stumbled upon uh, a man by the name of Greg Kokel. And if you've listened to this podcast, you've already heard that name. I've played him before in some of the other extra credits. But he teaches a course uh, designed for Christians, and it's specifically designed to teach you how to uh, evangelize. You know, how do you talk to people about God? How do you spread the gospel? But he does it in, I don't know, I would consider it an, an unorthodox way because he basically says that you can talk about God without talking about God, which sounds a little funny until you hear his his course. Now, this course is probably, I don't know, six or seven sessions long. It's it's pretty detailed, and I'm going to play it for you, and I, I parsed it down a little bit here, so I'm trying to get as much of the good stuff in, uh, squeeze it in in a short amount of time. And if you're not a theist, I still think you should stick around because the techniques that are taught in this in these sessions are so powerful and so helpful. And how, how can I put it to you uh, to, to explain this a little bit? Have you ever done something like so difficult and so challenging and then once you get through it, it makes other things easier for you? Like, oh, if I can do if I can do task A, I can for sure do task B. Simply put, if you have the ability to to train and you run 10 miles, then all of a sudden uh, running a 5K is a piece of cake, right? So if you do one difficult task, then tasks that are easier are just uh, a walk in the park. So how does this tie into uh, questions and how powerful they are? Well, as I was going through my uh, crisis of faith, I, I wasn't sure what I believed or, um, or more importantly, why I believed what I believe. And I, I didn't have really any good reasons. And as, as I'm trying to uncover those reasons, how I would sort of hone in and make sure I was thinking about things properly is I would actually seek out atheists to have conversations with 
Uh, sometimes I sided with them, sometimes I didn't. But I figured if I took the biggest and strongest ideas and the strongest opposition to uh, a view and it withstood that pressure, and then that's probably a good indication that I was on the right path. So to frame this up, I would have these crazy conversations about the beginning of the universe, the existence of God, evil in the world, um, homosexuality, same-sex marriage, abortion. I mean, you pick any crazy hot topic, politically polarizing topic, I would talk about that with anyone who wanted to talk about it. And as a side note, you would be very surprised how many people (laughs) are willing to talk about such weighty subjects. So how does this all translate over into relationships? Well, if you've ever had like really, really difficult conversations about (laughs) does God exist, then all of a sudden having a conversation or an interpersonal communication conflict with someone about hey, you seem mad at me. Uh, Did I do something to hurt your feelings? Like all of a sudden, like asking a question like that is super, super easy. So if you can stick around and listen to this and learn some of the techniques and and the the tactics on how to interact with people. And again, these are specifically regarding spiritual matters, but they translate so, so well over into just everyday personal conflicts and conflict resolution and things like that. And if you get comfortable with these and asking all of these questions and being able to maneuver through difficult conversations, that is going to make every area of your relationships stronger. And it greatly reduces simple miscommunication. So anyway, check out these sessions. They're super helpful in bolstering your ability and your confidence to enter into uh, conversations in particular, difficult conversations, because you and I both know that that's the conversations that need to be had the most and that most people end up avoiding, and that's what causes trouble in your relationships. So whether you believe in God or not, I I strongly suggest that you would take a listen to these and uh, glean the information and the tactics from someone that's very, very skilled at dealing with very difficult conversations. So again, this is like six or seven sessions long. So I had to edit it here and there. So it jumps around a little bit, takes maybe uh, five, 10 minutes to sort of explain some of the theories behind uh, these tactics. But if you stick with it, I think you'll get a whole lot out of it. So check it out and enjoy it. And hopefully you can practice and use some of these techniques in your own life. All right, here it is. Tactics are not tricks or slick ruses. They are not clever ploys to destroy your non-Christian friends, to force them to submit to your point of view. They are not attempts to belittle or humiliate others to gain notches in your spiritual belt. Instead, by contrast, tactics will enable you to present the truth clearly and cleverly. It will help you maneuver to get a footing or an advantage in a conversation, helping you to navigate through the minefields, They'll put you in the driver's seat. They'll allow you, in many cases, to stop a challenger cold and turn the tables. So the goal here in using tactics is to manage, not to manipulate. It's to control, but not to coerce. It is to finesse, but not to fight, all right? Now, I'm giving you these warnings about tactics for two reasons. First, these tactics are powerful. They can be used very easily. 
Frankly, it's not difficult to make someone look silly with these techniques. I don't want you to do that. And I want you to guard yourself so you're not using tactics just to get an inappropriate advantage over somebody else. In fact, I want you to be vigilant to protect the other person. If you listen to our radio program, either live or on the internet at str.org, you will notice that when I'm dealing with somebody that disagrees with me, I'm doing everything that I can to protect them and keep them from looking foolish. Now, sometimes they do a pretty good job of doing that all on their own, but I'm not trying to do that. I don't mind making their arguments look foolish, but I'm not trying to embarrass them. Now, we use a variety of different tactics that stand to reason. I've already mentioned a few of them. Each has its own name. The name helps you to remember the tactic. Names like Columbo, or Suicide, Taking the Roof Off, or Rhodes Scholar, or Just the Facts Ma'am, or Sticks and Stones, or Steamroller. Some of these tactics are chiefly offensive, that is, you initiate them. Some are chiefly defensive, that is, they're tactics you use in response to other people. And the first one is the one that I consider to be the queen mother of all tactics. It's the one tactic I use more than any other. It's easily combined with other tactics. It's the simplest tactic imaginable to help you stop a challenger in his tracks, turn the tables, and get him thinking. It's an almost effortless way to put you in the driver's seat. It's called the Columbo Tactic. Now, the Columbo Tactic is named for Lieutenant Columbo, of course, the brilliant detective who appears bumbling, inept, and completely harmless to his enemies. And that's important here. He's got the rumpled trench coat. He's got the bedhead before bedheads were popular. He's got this little stub of a cigar. He's got the pad of paper, never has a pencil. Got to bum one off of somebody else. In other words, Columbo looks like he couldn't think his way out of a wet paper bag. He's stupid, but he's stupid like a fox. And while he's putting his foes at ease with his harmless demeanor, Columbo then employs his trademark approach. And you'll see him stop in the crime scene there, and he'll pause for a moment. He'll put his elbow in his hand and his other hand to his head and scratch his furrowed brow in deep contemplation. And then he'll say something like this. I don't know. I got a problem. Something about this thing bothers me. Do you mind if I ask you a question? You know how he does that, right? And then he gets his answer back and he thinks, Oh, you're very intelligent. Then just before he leaves, he turns on his heel and faces the person that he thinks is the guilty one. And he says, Just one more thing. And then he one more tings him to death. Question after question after question after question. In fact, he's got to apologize for it. Hey, I'm sorry. I know I'm making a pest of myself. It's because I keep asking these questions, but I tell you I can't help myself. It's a habit. And that's a habit that you ought to get into. The key to the Colombo tactic is to go on the offensive in a disarming way with carefully selected questions to productively advance the conversation. The guideline here is simple. If you hit a roadblock, ask a question. Never make an assertion when a question can make the same point. And you know, with planning and practice, this tactic can become second nature for you. And if you recall in our last session, we covered a number of important points. The first thing that I talked about with you is the value of using a tactical approach. And when I talked about the value, I covered three different points. First, I said that tactics will help you get into the driver's seat. 
They'll help you control the conversation. In other words, tactics will help things be a lot more comfortable for you, but they'll also help you to guide things even when you're confronted with somebody that may be more aggressive than you are. The second point that I made under the value of using the tactical approach is that tactics will help you maneuver in the face of opposition. If you don't know exactly how to proceed in a conversation, tactics help you to give you a game plan, as it were. And the third point that I made was that tactics can make your engagements with others seem a lot more like diplomacy than like combat. It's just more friendly. Now, I also spent some time distinguishing between tactics and strategy. Strategy involves the big picture where tactics involves the actual details of the engagement. The big picture, in the case of Christianity, entails the, the information that we have, that we are well positioned in the big picture, given the facts of the matter, to defend Christianity. The facts are on our side, would be another way of putting that. Tactics, by contrast, involve the orderly, immediate, hands-on choreography, so to speak, of those particulars, the face-to-face -face encounters. I talked about a danger of using tactics. I reminded you that tactics are not tricks that are meant to belittle or humiliate non-Christians, but rather they are clever ways to maneuver toward an appropriate advantage, helping you to stay in control of the conversation. And finally, in our last session, I introduced you to the Colombo tactic. This is the tactic I use most often. I find it very, very effective, very powerful. It's amazing how much progress you can make in this first tactic, the Colombo tactic, without knowing much at all. The Colombo tactic, in a nutshell, uses carefully selected questions to go on the offensive in a disarming way. The questions are a great way to start conversations. The questions are interactive. They're friendly. They're personal. In addition, another advantage, the Colombo tactic removes the need for preaching because instead of having to argue your case, you can use the questions to make your case in an indirect fashion. You can actually make good headway, in other words, without actually stating your own case. And then we talked about the very first Colombo question. Remember, Colombo has three different uses, and each use is initiated by a particular question. The first use is to gather information, and the question that we use to initiate that use of the Colombo tactic is, what do you mean by that? It's a clarification question, it provides you with important information about your opponent's views, and it also forces the other person to think more carefully about his or her exact meaning. Remember, a lot of people haven't thought very much about their own views. When you say, what do you mean by that, or some variation, this forces them to reflect a little bit more on exactly what they do mean. By the way, one of the things I really like about the Colombo tactic is that it enables me to escape the charge uh, of somebody else that I'm twisting their words. How can I twist somebody else's words when I'm asking a question? The whole point of asking the question is to avoid twisting other people's words. I'm asking the question to get a very clear take on what exactly they do mean so I don't misunderstand them, so I don't twist their words. Okay, let's talk about the second step in the Colombo tactic, reversing the burden of proof. I mentioned that the first application of Colombo is to help you understand what a person thinks. That's why you ask the question, what do you mean by that? The second application, known as reversing the burden of proof, helps you learn why they think the way they do. Basically here you want their argument. You've got their point of view, now you want the reasons, the rationale, the justification, the evidence, whatever it is that convinces them that they ought to believe the thing they actually believe. 
An argument is a very particular kind of thing. It isn't just a point of view. It isn't just an assertion. An argument is a, an assertion or a point of view that is buttressed by reasons. It's like a house with walls and a roof. Where the walls hold up the roof, in the case of the argument, it is the reasons that hold up the conclusion or the point of view. Your first question gives you the point of view. Now you want to know what holds that point of view up. Of course, now we've introduced a term, haven't we? Burden of proof. What exactly is burden of proof? What does that term mean? Have you ever heard it before? If someone were to ask you what burden of proof means, could you give them an answer? Simply put, the burden of proof is the responsibility somebody has to defend or give evidence for one's view. It's the burden born to give reasons for a point of view. Now, if that's the burden of proof, that is the burden to give reasons for a point of view, what is the rule that governs who has the responsibility to bear the burden of proof? And actually, it's quite simple. It goes like this. The person who makes the claim bears the burden. If you don't make any claims, obviously, you don't have anything to prove. So you don't need to offer any proof for something you're not claiming. If you're just asking a question, you aren't making a claim, therefore you bear no burden of proof. However, the person who does make the claim has an obligation to give some reasons why the claim is reasonable. They bear the burden of proof. And I'll tell you why this is important. It is not unusual for Christians to get into conversations when the other side raises an objection, makes a claim, offers a point of view contrary to Christianity, and then folds their arms and wait for you to refute their point of view. That puts you, obviously, in the defensive position, even though it is they that have made the claim. Don't allow yourself to be thrust into a defensive posture when the other person's making a claim. In other words, no more free rides. I think Christians should get out of the habit of trying to refute every story a non-believer can spin or every claim he can manufacture. When another person makes a claim, the purpose here, the rule here, the point here, the skill here is to simply put the burden back on their shoulders where it belongs. Place the burden of proof on your opponent. Make her give you her argument, not just her assertion, not just her point of view. In the immortal words of Desi Arnaz, they got a lot of splaining to do themselves. You know, Desi Arnaz. Ricky Ricardo. Lucy, you cannot be on the show. That Ricky, okay, that Desi. It's their job to explain their point of view. You see, a lot of challenges to Christianity thrive on very vague generalities and forceful but vacuous slogans. The burden of proof tactic forces people to be more explicit about their views and the reasons for their objections. It makes them do the work of defending their own views, and that's the way it ought to be. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. A couple of years back, I was a guest on a Los Angeles radio program on the top shock jock radio station in the city, KFI. And they asked me to come in on a Sunday night and spend a couple of hours talking with one of their talk show hosts about the issue of uh, intelligent design and creation over and against evolution, which I was very happy to do. So it was me against the crowd that evening, and I made my points and made my case and then fielded phone calls. Well, somebody called in and, and raised an objection. And the objection was Big Bang cosmology. And what 
he was trying to say was that Big Bang cosmology makes it unnecessary for us to assert a God at all. And I pointed out to him that actually Big Bang cosmology works on our side. Now, I know this is controversial among Christians, and some people are uncomfortable with this, but it doesn't bother me at all. If it turns out that there was a Big Bang, it seems to me there has to be a big banger, you know. Somebody had to pull the trigger. And therefore, Big Bang cosmology works in favor of Christians, as it would any theist, really, because it shows there's got to be some kind of God to do the initial work. And so I explained this to him, and uh, he immediately had a response. In other words, he was going to go on to explain to me how you can have a Big Bang without a Big Banger. And let me read you exactly what he said, because it's a great example of the problem that he faced of burden of proof. And here's what he said. Well, I don't think it is. That is, I don't think it's evidence for your view, Kokel, because you could start with a base of nothing and you could say that there was nothing but an infinite, continuous moment. And eventually one tiny, little, insignificant thing happened. A point happened in the nothingness. I want you to pause for just a moment and think about that. A point happened in the nothingness. How do you get a point in the nothingness? I mean, that's the problem, isn't it? Nothing isn't anything to have a point in, you know? <laughs> I guess maybe it's easier if, you, if it's a really, really small point, like he's saying. But in any event, this is the difficulty. He continued, though. And then the point expanded, which is extremely simple. It requires no intelligence, so no intelligent God had to intervene. All we need is a little, tiny imperfection in the perfect nothingness, and that imperfection expanded and became variegated and increasingly complex, and soon you had galaxies and planets, and then on he went, spinning this tale about how the universe came out of nothing. Now, apparently he had this picture in his own mind that nothingness was kind of a big pond that was very still, and then you had some little thing that is dropped into the still pond of nothingness, and it creates all these ripples, and the ripples create reverberations, and the reverberations create things, I guess. I don't know. But that's the way he had it in his mind. The problem is you can't drop something into a pond of nothing because nothing is nothing, in fact, when you start with nothing, you can't have even some very, very little thing to drop into the pond of nothing. Nothing begets nothing, is the point. Now, you can imagine if you were in my position on the radio, having somebody spin this tale, how would you respond? Well, you know, I'm thinking to myself, gee, what is this guy on drugs or what? What's the deal here? You know, but I realized that I did not have a difficult time in responding, not because I'm a physicist or an astronomer or because I have all this deep understanding and knowledge is because of a very, very simple rule of burden of proof. I employed here the second stage of the Colombo tactic, or at least I employed it in principle, though I didn't ask the question. And here's what I said on that radio show. I said, Dick, you know, it's very interesting the way you started your response to me. You said you could say that. And then you went on to tell your story. Well, you're right, I said. You can say anything you want. However, giving reasons for us to believe that what you said makes any sense is actually true, is worthy of consideration. That's another thing altogether. It's your job not only to make the point, give us the story, but give us reasons as well. And you haven't done that. You see, saying whatever he wants to say is one thing. Giving evidence or reasons for those views is another thing 
altogether, and it's our opponent's job to defend her unbelief and prove her views. It is not our job to refute them. Now, here's a very important principle along this same line. An alternate explanation is not a refutation. Let me say that again. An alternate explanation is not a refutation. In other words, it's not uncommon for somebody facing a Christian claim or a Christian piece of evidence to say, oh, I can explain that, and then spin a story. It's not enough for them to simply explain it, that is, give an alternate explanation. They have to show why their explanation is a good explanation. It's not enough that it appeals to him or that it saves his paradigm. Even if it's a plausible explanation, he's still got to show why this explanation is a better one, given the evidence, given the facts of the matter, than the ones the Christian offers. Now, it might be a legitimate first step to offer the alternate explanation, but he's got to take it further. He's got to show why his alternative view is more reasonable than your view. He must shoulder the burden of proof for his own views. It's just that simple. Now, by the way, when we reverse the burden of proof on the other person who's making the claim, this is not a trick that we use to avoid defending our own claims. When we make claims, we have to answer for them. Yes, we want to ask questions. We want them to give us their point of view. We want to understand the reasons why they think their point of view is a good one. But eventually, we have to make some claims ourselves. And when we do, we have a responsibility, as do they, to shoulder the burden of proof for our own claims. That's not really the problem. We already do that too much. What I'm saying here is they also have the same responsibility. They must shoulder the burden of proof for their own claims. That's my point. Now, there are some, I think, somewhat obvious exceptions to this burden of proof rule. There are things which might be called self-evident truths or properly basic beliefs that it's not necessary for you to give evidence of. To say, for example, that there are no square circles doesn't require additional proof by you. This is a self-evident claim because the notion of square circularity is a contradiction in terms. They can't be. And if somebody thinks they can be, they bear the burden there to show you how it can be the case. Basic beliefs are, are those kinds of beliefs that are grounded in very reasonable assumptions about reality, and therefore those who hold basic beliefs have no burden of proof. Okay, uh, For example, we're under no obligation to prove our own existence or the basic reliability of our senses. Unless given evidence to the contrary, it seems that the way things appear to be are the way the things actually are. In other words, just because it's possible to be mistaken doesn't mean that it's reasonable to believe that I am. We take things at face value. And if I claim things are the way they obviously appear to be, I don't bear the burden. Somebody else does if they disagree with me. Unless I'm given contrary evidence, I'm justified in believing things are just the way they look. Now, this applies also, by the way, to the basic laws of logic as well, the law of non-contradiction, the law of excluded middle, and uh, the law of identity. These are things that we employ in conversation all the time, even if we don't know what the terms are or how to define those things, they are built into the structure of our minds. In fact, we have to use them to engage in any form of meaningful conversation, and therefore we're under no obligation to prove them to be true. Okay, this takes us to our second Columbo question. Remember, we have three uses of the Columbo tactic, each initiated by a different question. The first use is to gain information, and the question is, what do you mean by that? The second use is to reverse the burden of proof. Now, here's the key question that we can use to reverse the burden of proof. That is, force a person to bear the burden of proving the claim that he's making. 
The question is this. Now, how did you come to that conclusion? Now, how did you come to that conclusion? Now, you can use some variations like why do you say that or what are your reasons for holding that view, but that's the basic idea. The first question, what do you mean by that, tells you what he thinks. The second question helps you to learn how he thinks or if he's thinking really at all. Gives you valuable information on how you might question that person further. Now, when you ask this question, it's really a gracious question because it assumes that the non-believer has actually come to a conclusion. In other words, that he has reasons for his view or that he's not just making an assertion or emoting in this particular case. Now, the reason I say that is because it's often not the case that people have come to a conclusion, and in fact, they are just asserting or they're emoting. And this question will uncover that. So give them a few moments. I mean, don't be surprised if you get a blank stare. Many people have never thought through their views. They don't know why they hold the views they hold. They probably hold them because they've been socialized to believe this thing or to respond this way. That is, everybody in their group says this, and so when this issue comes up, they respond in kind, but they haven't thought through whether the response is a good one. By the way, Christians do this all the time, too. We've been socialized by our communities, our Christian communities, our church, to respond in certain rote ways with Christian slogans, which slogans we don't understand, even what they mean in many cases, and we certainly don't understand the good reasons why we ought to believe what we've just said. Here's an important insight with this tactic. The truth is, sometimes the simplest, most effective question you can ask someone is a variation of the question, how do you know? Uh, this tactic can take a number of different forms. You could say, why should I believe what you believe? Or, what makes you think that's the right way to see it? Or, I'm curious, why would you say a thing like that? When somebody knocks on your door to tell you about their religion, you can ask, why should I trust that your organization, the Mormon Church, Joseph Smith, the Watchtower, why should I trust that they speak for God? Is that a fair question? Of course it is. They're offering you the organization's point of view as from God. It's certainly fair to ask why we should take it as such. And we need a good answer. An answer, well, pray about it and you'll feel it, is not good enough. Our feelings can mislead us. Let me give you a few more examples. People say, you can never know anything for sure. My response is, why should I believe that? Can you give me a good reason why I should believe nothing can be known with certainty? Here's another one. Morals are just an invention of culture. There are no objective moral rules. And what would be your evidence for that? The miracles of Jesus and the Gospels were an invention of the early church. Can you give me some reasons why you think that's true? Reincarnation was taken out of the Bible. And what support do you have for that idea? That ought to give you a little sense about how this question works. Don't settle for an alternate explanation. Don't settle for a mere assertion, even if it's aggressively given with tremendous confidence. Always ask the question, why? Why should I believe that? Now, once in a while, you're going to hear a very odd response to your request for reasons for a person's belief. The person's going to say, well, I don't have any reasons. I just believe it. When you think about it, this is a remarkable admission. And it should not pass without you asking another question. And basically, the question you ask is the second Columbo question. Why would you believe something you have no reason to believe is true? Now, if they say they don't need reasons to believe something, ask them why they would believe that. See if they take the bait and try to give you reasons why they don't need to give reasons. 
it's important to press somebody at this point. You'll be surprised at how many people take this tact in your questioning. And it's really a very, very foolish thing to say. Don't let it pass. Be sure to challenge it graciously, but directly. I want to mention something else, too, so we keep things in proper perspective. You know, we can spend hours helping someone carefully work through an issue without ever mentioning God or Jesus or the Bible. This does not mean that we aren't advancing the kingdom. I think it's always a step in the right direction when we help people to discover the truth. Even if the truth doesn't have to do with God at that particular point, it gives them the tools that will help them to assess the bigger questions that will eventually come up. Further, when you challenge people to think carefully, we're acknowledging that they bear the image of God, and this affirms their intrinsic worth. Always treat people with respect, and part of treating them with respect is giving them reasons to believe and to challenge their reasons for unbelief. You might not get to God right away. Give it time. Just plant a seed. Put a stone in their shoe. Move just a little bit further forward if that's all that you have that you can give at that moment. Now, when you use the Colombo tactic in this second sense and you reverse the burden of proof with this question that we've offered, how did you come to that conclusion? There is a pitfall you need to be aware of, and I call this the professor's ploy. Oftentimes in the classroom situation, you're going to run into professors that have it as their life's goal to destroy the faith of Christians. In fact, some of them will even ask at the beginning of the term, how many people in this room are Christians? Raise your hands. And then he counts them off and he says, at the end of this term, you won't be Christians. You won't be when I get done with you, essentially. Uh, I've had lots of people tell me that this is what's happened in the classroom. Now, the professor then will go ahead and, you know, over the course of the term, take every opportunity that they can take to attack Christianity. And they might say something like, well, the Bible's just a bunch of fables, and they'll ridicule the Bible and the Bible writers and people who believe in the Bible. Now, you're going to have well-meaning Christians in the audience that will not let this pass. In a desire to be faithful to Christ, they want to raise their hand and then get into a pitched battle with the professor on this issue. This is well-meaning, but it's wrong-headed. It rarely works. Don't make that mistake. Never make a frontal assault on a superior force. Why? Because there is a rule of engagement that governs exchanges like these, and that rule is the man with the microphone wins. You don't get into a power struggle when you're outgunned. The professor always has the strategic advantage in a situation like that, and he knows it. Now, there's a better way. Don't disengage. Don't just sit there and be silent. Instead, use your tactics. Raise your hand and ask a question. Now, what might be a question that you might ask in a situation like that? Does any question come to mind? How about this one? Professor, what do you mean by that? Okay. Now, is that a fair question to ask as a student? Of course it is. You're the student. That's the kind of thing you're supposed to do. Now, once he's answered the question and given you more of an idea of what he actually believes, you might ask another question. And what might that question be? Now, Professor, how did you come to that conclusion? You want him to give you the reasons for the claim that he just made. This allows you to stay engaged while deftly sidestepping the power struggle. But this is where the professor might employ his ploy, what I called the professor's ploy. 
the professor might figure out what's going on. He knows even though you're asking questions and you're not stating your point of view, you've got one, and you're trying to make your point by using questions. And so he might say to you, oh, you must be one of those born-again Christians, those people who believe that the Bible's the inspired word of God. What do you call it? Every jot and tittle. God breathed or something like that. Well, you know, I'm a fair guy. I've got a few minutes here. Why don't you just take a few moments, stand up, and explain to the rest of the class why you think the Bible is the inspired word of God. Now, what has he done? He has reversed the burden of proof, hasn't he, from himself onto you. Now, why is that an illicit move in this set of circumstances? Because you haven't made any claims, have you? You've just asked the questions. Don't take the bait even if it looks very appealing, don't do it. Instead, say something like this. Well, Professor, you actually don't know what I believe because I've never said anything about what my view actually is. I, I, I'm the student here. I'm trying to learn. I'm just asking the questions. I just want to know what it is you believe. I want to be clear on this statement, and I want to know if you have any reasons for it, unless you want us just to take this all on faith. No, no, you don't say that. That's Then you'd be in the power play again. The point is, though, you're asking for these things, and it's fair for you to say to him, I'm just asking the question. Now, if he answers the question, say thank you. If he gives a good answer, simply thank him for explaining himself, and you can either ask another question or let it go for the time being. But don't miss the point here. The Christian doesn't have to be the expert in everything. If we keep the burden of proof on the other side when they're making the claim, we don't have to have all the answers. In fact, we can be effective even when we know very little if we ask the right questions. And that's what the Colombo tactic is all about. Remember, the two most important questions you can ever ask in this kind of conversation are, what do you believe? What do you mean by that? And why do you believe it? How did you come to that conclusion? Now, reflect for just a moment on the tone of our questions. What do you mean by that? And how did you come to that conclusion? They're engaging and conversational. They're probing, but still amicable. They keep you in the driver's seat while the other person does all the work, and that's vitally important. Now, what if you don't know where to go next? Don't sweat it. The third use of the Colombo tactic will be covered in the next session. It will help you uproot the flaws, difficulties, and problems with another's view. Getting to the third use of the Colombo tactic, however, requires insight into those flaws. If you don't have the resources to go further, or if you sense the person is losing interest, don't feel compelled to force the conversation. Let the encounter die a natural death. You can still consider it a fruitful, interactive learning experience nonetheless. You don't have to hit home runs, is what I'm saying here. In fact, you don't even have to get on base. Sometimes just getting up to bat will do, and the first two Colombo questions accomplish just that. Now this brings me to another point that's very important for your attitude. And this is a bit controversial. People have disagreed with me on this point, but I want you to consider it at least. You don't have to get to the foot of the cross in every encounter. Most people need time to consider what you've talked about. And I think that's a healthy thing. After all, if people get to the cross too quickly, they may leave just as quickly. In addition, some Christians aren't good closers. Some are very good. Some are the evangelist types. They can, they can close the deal, so to speak, and others are not. I don't consider myself a very good closer. I, I consider myself in a different role. 
Those who are good closers are consistently successful in bringing others to a decision for Christ, just giving the simple gospel. But they mistakenly conclude then that it should be just as simple for everyone else. The fact is, other ambassadors probably have already paved the way for them, paved it with the planting and the watering and the weeding that Paul says we all kind of participate in at some time, making it possible for this evangelist then to bump the fruit and have it fall into his basket. He harvests with ease. It's only because other ambassadors have gone before him. Now, most of us are not harvesters. I mentioned I don't think I'm much of a harvester. I'm more of a gardener, and maybe you're that way too. We tend the crops so that others can harvest in due season. Some Christians, aware of their difficulty in harvesting, seeing other people do it very easily, aware that they don't do it very well, never get into the field at all. And this is my concern. I want to encourage you. It's okay to sow seeds, even if you don't harvest. Somebody's got to do it. As different members of the same body, we each play a very unique and vital role. And yours and mine may not be in harvesting, but it may be in planting seeds and tending the plant. It may be just putting a stone in somebody else's shoe. Now, let me add another little tip that will help you here. It's a technique I call narrating the debate. A lot of people you're going to talk to are going to struggle when you turn the tables on them with questions like these. They're going to balk when you ask them to provide evidence for their views. They're going to try to change the subject or simply reassert their views. And sometimes they do this because they haven't thought much about the issue you're discussing. Dodging your question may be their only recourse. Now, it's critical that you, at this point, kind of pause in the conversation with them and narrate the debate. Here's what I mean by that. Take a moment to stop and describe what's going on in the conversation. It's almost as if you're stepping outside of the conversation, looking back on the conversation, and talking about what's going on. Think about it like this. Somebody else comes in in the middle of the conversation and asks what's going on. And you give a quick summary of what's going on to that person so that person knows where you're at in the discussion. You're doing basically that very same thing with the person you're talking to when you narrate the debate for them. This will help your friend and the others listening in to see exactly how she's gotten off course. So you say something like this. Hold on. Wait a minute. Look what's happening here. First, you made a what seemed to me a fairly controversial statement, which I challenged and asked you to clarify and defend. So far, you haven't done that. You've just taken us off in another direction. Before we move on to a new topic, can we finish this one? Don't let your friend get off the hook by dodging the issues. Instead, narrate the debate. Show them what they're doing and politely ask them to get back to the point. This approach keeps the pressure on while keeping the conversation cordial. Encourage your friend to clarify herself. And forcing her to face the music at this point may just be the first step towards a change of mind. Let me take a few moments to explain to you another advantage of these first two questions of the Colombo tactic. And that advantage is using them to keep you out of the hot seat. You know, sometimes we are afraid of getting in over our heads. And that fear is often enough to keep us from saying anything at all. We're afraid we may not have enough information. We're afraid we might not be quick enough on our feet to deal with the kind of challenges that might come up in a free-flowing conversation. I'll tell you what we especially dread, the possibility of some aggressive critic blasting us with arguments and opinions and information that we are simply not equipped to handle. This is where the Colombo tactic really shines. 
Questions can help you control the conversation, even when you sense you may be overmatched by the person opposing you. Here's an easy way to buy yourself some thinking time when you feel like you're being overwhelmed. Right? Don't feel under pressure to immediately answer every question asked or every point made, especially when someone else is coming on strong. When you've gotten into conversation and they come back at you with this and that and the other thing and you feel overwhelmed and you can't respond, don't. That is, don't try to answer it. Instead, practice a little what I call conversational Aikido. You know, Aikido, that self-defense form where you use the other person's power against them. They're coming at you and you kind of sidestep and grab them and let their power go by you and kind of break an arm in the process as they fly by you. Okay, practice that in conversation. Let them keep coming at you, but in a way that you control them. Shift from argument mode to fact-finding mode. Let me say it again. Shift from arguing mode to fact-finding mode. Say something like, hold on just a minute. Whoa, this is new to me. I want to understand your point, but you have to slow down so I can get it accurately. If you will, you say, take a moment to carefully explain your view and your reasons for it so I can understand it. Now, by the way, did you notice that those are the two Columbo questions? Take a moment to carefully explain your view and your reasons for it so I can understand it. So you're slowing that person down. You're not trying to address the challenges. You're saying, hold on just a minute. Tell me what you believe and why you believe it. And then let me think about it. Those are the magic words. Let me say it again. Then let me think about it. Now, why are those the magic words? Because when you utter that phrase, all the pressure on you is off. Do you have any obligation to answer them? No, you just said you're going to think about it. You've just admitted you're not able to do that. All you want is the information from that person that will allow you to think about it carefully. And then when you get the information, listen carefully, take notes if you have to, find out what they believe and why they believe it. Then take that information back and when you're alone, on your own, at your leisure, you can research the issue. Go back to notes that you've taken in a class. Look in some of your books. Go on the Internet. Go to the website at str, str.org. Call me during office hours on the radio station on Sundays, 3 to 5, Los Angeles time, 1-800-227-5278. You can do that. Contact some other friends that may know a little bit about that. Do the research yourself. But you're not doing it under pressure. Nobody's looking over your shoulder. You can take the time to get it right. And then when this issue comes up again, or when you talk to this person again, you've got a reasoned response. Now, what happens if they bring up something else you don't know? You do the very same thing. Hold on a minute. That's new to me. Why don't you slow down just a minute? Give me your view and your reasons for it. Let me get it clearly, and I'll get back to you. Let me think about it for a while. Make sure you understand the challenge, the objection, then work on it later and come back better prepared next time. The key here is to get out of the hot seat, get the pressure off, but still stay engaged and stay in control. There are no winners here or losers. Nothing is at stake anymore. It's essentially as if you're saying, oh, you want to beat me up? Fine with me. Just do it slowly and thoroughly. Now, let me ask you a question. Is there anybody, even the most retiring, the most shy, the most bashful, the most skittish, the most timid, the most reserved, who cannot do this? This is easy. 
You want to beat me up? Fine, do it slowly and thoroughly. And notice this deftly shifts control of the conversation back to you while shifting the spotlight and the pressure back on him. You're no longer under any obligation to answer, to refute, or to even respond. You've already said you need to give the issue more thought. In some, then, asking simple leading questions is an almost effortless way to accomplish balance in your conversation. You can advance the dialogue, you can make capital of the conversation for spiritual ends without seeming abrupt, rude, or pushy. Your questions are engaging, they're interactive, they are probing, but they're amicable. And most important, they keep you in the driver's seat while someone else does all the work. Let's look for a moment at the main points we've covered in this session. First, we've examined the second use of the Colombo tactic, reversing the burden of proof. Burden of proof is the responsibility someone has to defend or give evidence for his or her view, and the person who makes the claim bears the burden. It's not enough simply to give an alternate explanation. You've got to give a reason why your explanation is better than someone else's. Now, the question that you use to reverse the burden of proof is, how did you come to that conclusion? The second thing we did is we learned how to avoid the professor's ploy. It's a common move that is used by some people to escape the burden of proof. It's not just professors, by the way. And what we learned is don't allow yourself to get caught in a power play. Instead, use your tactics and then refuse to shoulder the burden of proof when you have not made the claim. The third thing we did is we realized that we don't need to force a conversation, right? We don't have to hit home runs every time. Sometimes we just have to get up to bat and that's all that's necessary, that still makes progress. And the first two Columbo questions help us get in the game. The last thing we learned is we looked at how to use the Columbo tactic to keep ourselves out of the hot seat. We shift from argument mode to fact-finding mode. We ask probing clarification questions without trying to win our case. We use the magic phrase, let me think about it. Then once we've understood their point of view and the reasons for it, we can work on the issues later when the pressure's off. Now, in the next session, we're going to explore the final phase of the Colombo tactic, and that is exploiting a weakness or a flaw in someone's views. We're also going to help you improve your Colombo skills. We're going to show you specifics on how to do that and how to defend yourself against the Colombo tactic when someone uses it on you. We'll talk to you next time. Hi, this is Greg Kokel, and this is our third session together talking about tactics of defending the faith. And uh, let's go over quickly what we covered in the last session, okay, just as a review to bring us up to speed on the new material. First, we examined the second use of the Colombo tactic. We call that reversing the burden of proof. Burden of proof is the responsibility someone has to defend or give evidence for his or her view. And the rule is, of course, the person who makes the claim bears that burden. The burden requires a defense, by the way. They can't just give an alternate explanation because an alternate explanation is not a refutation. It's just another point of view that's thrown into the arena, and that needs a defense as well. The question that we use to reverse the burden of proof is this. How did you come to that conclusion or some variation of that? Now, the second thing we learned was how to avoid the professor's ploy. This is a common trap that relates to the issue of burden of proof. And I suggested that you not allow yourself to get caught in a power play when you're outgunned. Instead, use your tactics. Refuse to then shoulder the burden of proof when you've not made a claim. In other words, don't take your professor on head to head. 
All right? Use your tactics, ask your questions, but then don't let him shift the burden of proof on you if you're asking questions and not making claims. Third, we realize we don't need to force a conversation. You don't have to hit home runs. Every time that we have a conversation with somebody, sometimes just getting up to bat will do. And the questions, the Colombo tactic allows you to do that. Fourth, we learned how to use the Colombo tactic to get ourselves out of the hot seat. That is when we feel like we're overwhelmed or overpowered, we're out of our depth, we're up against somebody we can't manage, fine. We practice a little verbal Aikido. We shift from argument mode to fact-finding mode. We ask probing clarification questions without trying to win our case just then. We use the first two questions that we learned in the Colombo tactic, and then we work on our issues later when the pressure's off once we understand the point of view. Okay? Now, in this session, here's what we're going to do. We're going to examine the third use of the Colombo tactic, and that is using questions to exploit a flaw or a weakness in another person's view. We're also going to learn specific ways to improve your use of Colombo. And then finally, you're going to learn how to defend against the Colombo tactic when somebody uses it against you. Let me offer an opening thought before we proceed any further. When someone's cherished view is at stake, it's not unusual for them to raise very empty objections, objections that initially sound worthwhile but simply can't be defended once examined. The probing questions of the Colombo tactic will often show you the lack of substance behind the bluster. Just like the emperor in the new clothes, you know, all it takes is for one person to say you're naked and the game's up. In this session, we're not going to settle with being on the defensive. Now we're going to go on the offensive and dismantle the other person's viewpoint by asking penetrating questions. That's the key to the Colombo tactic. It's important to place the burden of proof on your opponent and dismantle their views. Now, on to the third use of Colombo. The answer to your second Colombo question, that question being, how did you come to that conclusion? This answer has now tipped you off to the way the other person reasons. This gives you valuable information on how to proceed if you choose to. The third application of Colombo is simply using questions to exploit a weakness or a flaw to subtly challenge or to dismantle the other person's views. Let me say that again. The third application of Colombo is to use questions to exploit a weakness or a flaw to subtly challenge or to dismantle the other person's views. You're going on the offensive now. Now, the information you gather with the first two questions puts you in a better position to move to this final stage. You've gathered your information. You know what he believes and why he believes it. Now you want to try to find a flaw. Those first two questions were somewhat passive. The third Colombo question takes you on the offensive yet in a way that is not offensive itself. Your conversation with the person could alert you to some weakness, some flaw, some contradiction in the person's argument that can be exposed or exploited. That's what you're after. Now, there's no special formula for making this discovery. You're going to uncover it by listening carefully and then thinking about what was said. You want to look, you want to observe, you want to reflect. The key to this step, if there is a key, is paying close attention to the answer to the question, how did you come to that conclusion? Keep in mind that an argument is a very unique kind of thing. It's kind of like a house. A house has a roof, and it has walls that hold the roof up. If the walls are bad, the roof is going to fall down. The roof is like the idea or the conclusion or the assertion or the thing the person believes in. 
The walls are like the evidence or the support or the justification or the grounding or the rationale that commends the view, basically. Now, what you want to look at is to see whether the person's view, which you learned in the answer to the first question, what do you mean by that, is adequately supported by the evidence he gives you in the answer to the second question, how did you come to that conclusion? You want to see whether his walls are strong enough to hold up the roof. And the only way to see that is to reflect, to listen, to look at that structure that he's just given you and see if, in fact, his conclusion follows from the evidence. Ask yourself if there is any blatant weakness in the view. Sometimes it will be very obvious. Other times you have to look more closely. Do the conclusions follow from the evidence? Can you question any underlying assumptions? Is there a misstep or a non sequitur, a fallacy or a failing of some sort? When you discover it, then address any consistency with a question, not a statement. Now, this step takes more practice than the other two steps. The other two steps are easy. You just do them. It doesn't take any insight. This one takes insight. And if you don't get it right away, don't be frustrated. In time, if you work at it, you're going to improve. You have to have an ability to see the flaws in the argument, and this is a demanding, somewhat daunting request. It's easy to stall out in the beginning, so don't be surprised and don't be discouraged. Remember, you don't have to hit home runs. You don't even have to get on base. Just get up to bat. Now, if you can get on base, this is the part of the Colombo tactic that will allow you to do that. Now, let's see how we might respond to a couple of challenges. Let's play this out a little bit. They say, you shouldn't push your morality on me. You ask, why not? Now, it's going to be hard for them to answer this question without contradicting themselves. When they say you shouldn't push your morality on them, they're pushing their morality on you. Notice the words, you shouldn't. Now, I know that they're doing something contradictory, but instead of pointing it out with a statement, I point it out with a question. The question throws the ball back into their lap, and now they must speak and destroy themselves, essentially. Here's another one. When they say, you're intolerant and arrogant, this comes up a lot. You ask, what do you mean by that? That's the first Colombo question. Now, you need this information to get to this next stage that I'm going to show you. You need to know what they mean by that. Generally, the question flushes out their definition of intolerant or arrogant, which exposes what I call the passive-aggressive tolerance trick. And you'll see that it's a trick in just a moment. Here's the way it usually looks. You're intolerant or arrogant. Well, what do you mean by that? I mean you think you're right and everyone who disagrees with you is wrong. Okay, now we got the definition, right? I think I'm right. That makes me arrogant. Hmm. There's a problem with that, though. You might have already seen it. So I say, tell me, do you think your views are right? The answer to that is, of course he does. That's why he believes what he believes. Nobody believes things and doesn't believe those things are true. A belief, by the way, is to hold that a thing is so. <laughs> you can't say that you have a belief, but don't believe that your beliefs are true. This is nonsense and it's contradictory. They hold the beliefs that they do because they think they're right. Now, this sets up an interesting situation because the questions to this point have now gotten me the definition and have offered me an opportunity to challenge them on their inconsistency. 
Yes, they think they're right, which then sets up the final question, the coup de grace, if you will. Help me out here, just like Lieutenant Colombo. Something about this thing bothers me. Why is it when I think I'm right, I'm intolerant, but when you think you're right, you're just right? What am I missing here? There it is. They're doing the exact same thing they're accusing you of doing, and you point it out with the question. When the professor says, the Bible's just a bunch of myths and fables, you can ask, how did you come to that conclusion? What's happened generally in that circumstance is the professor is assumed because of his naturalistic philosophy that miracles are impossible. Notice he's assumed it. Therefore, prior to looking at any evidence, he's determined that any historical references to miracles are myths and fables. That's what's driving his conclusion. Now, I know this because I've talked to a lot of them. Now, since modern-day science is based on naturalistic philosophy, he thinks science has proved, instead of assumed, there are no miracles. But since science can only measure the natural world, it can't draw any conclusions even in principle about the supernatural world. It's not capable of doing that. On the website, you'll find an article entitled, You Can't Weigh a Chicken with a Yardstick. Because yardsticks weren't meant to weigh things, they were meant to measure things. And science wasn't meant to measure miracles. Those are supernatural. It was meant to measure natural things. So science, in principle, can't even get at that question. And using this logic, the professor has made what's known as a category error. It's an apples and oranges error. He's asking the wrong kinds of questions about the thing in question. Right? Now that you have the background, here's how this might look in an exchange. The Bible's just a bunch of myths and fables. Professor, how'd you come to that conclusion? Because it has miracles in it. And why would that be a problem, Professor? Well, science has proven that miracles can't happen. And Professor, exactly how has science proven that miracles are impossible using the scientific method? Would you explain, Professor, how the methods of science can disprove the supernatural? See, there's a linked series of questions. And the final questions are ones that are meant to expose the weakness in his view. I can expose the weakness because I know the weakness. But once I know the weakness, I don't just challenge it outright and point at it. I use the question instead. That's the Colombo tactic in the third use. When somebody says to you, that's just your interpretation, you could say, what do you mean by just? Now, the goal here is to find out if they believe all interpretations are equally valid or yours is just another in the long line of them. If this is what they believe, well, you're free to interpret their words any way that strikes your fancy, an interpretation that is just as good as any other. So you can challenge a view by making some drastic claim about them. For example, taking them for a skinhead who thinks all Jews and homosexuals should be put in prison. When they object, you can just simply say, well, that's my interpretation of what you're saying. If you disagree, then that's your own interpretation. All interpretations are equally valid, aren't they? Or could it be that some interpretations are better than others? Another simple way of getting to that same point is when somebody says, that's just your interpretation, you could say, well, it is my interpretation. Maybe you can tell me what's wrong with it. Have I misunderstood the author? Have I taken something out of context? What if somebody says something like, well, Jesus was a good man and a prophet, but he wasn't God. He wasn't the only way to salvation. You can ask, well, how could Jesus be a good man and a prophet, but still be mistaken about his own identity and purpose? Now, this question goes to the Lord, liar, lunatic, trilemma. In other words, Jesus claimed to be God. He claimed to be the only way of salvation. Now, if he was right, then he was. And if he's wrong, then he can only be wrong because he knew he was wrong or he didn't know he was wrong. 
If he knew he was wrong, then he lied. If he didn't know that he wasn't God and he thought he was God, well, then he was crazy. Let's face it. So the only alternatives we have is either Jesus was who he claimed to be, or he was a liar, or he was a lunatic, and that's just about it. And this question here forces people to consider the logical implications of their view. A couple more examples to give you an idea how this works. When someone says the fetus may be a human being, but it's not a person, I always ask this question, what's the difference? Now, why do I do that? It's because they are claiming there is a morally relevant difference between an unborn child and a toddler that justifies killing one and not the other. They are saying that there are two categories of human beings, human persons and human non-persons. You must respect the one, but you can kill the other with impunity. Now, if humanity is divided into two groups like that, we better be darn sure we know where that dividing line is, and it's their job to provide it, since they're the ones who are making the distinction. Normally, they're not going to be able to do that because they've never really thought about it. They've just tossed this out. When people raise the question of the problem of evil, how can God exist when there's so much evil in the world? You can ask, but if there is no God, how can we call anything evil in the first place? In fact, how can we call anything good? The existence of evil assumes a standard that's used to distinguish good from evil, but there doesn't seem to be any good way to account for a standard of objective good, the moral rules that are violated by people who commit the evil in question, without the existence of a moral rule maker, which would be God. So how do we make sense of the difference between good and evil if there is no God, that's the strategy here in using this particular number three Columbo question regarding the problem of evil. Now, you can soften this third use of Columbo by couching your question as a request for clarification. You might begin by asking, can you clear this up for me? Or can you help me understand this, please? And then you offer your objection by gently challenging the belief or confronting the weakness in the argument. For example, can you clear this up for me? How could the teaching on reincarnation be removed from every existing handwritten copy of the New Testament circulating in the Roman world by the 4th century? I'm confused about that. Or, can you help me understand this? If the Bible were merely written by men, how could it contain fulfilled prophecies? How about this? Can you clear this up for me? How does having a burning in the bosom about the Book of Mormon give adequate evidence for its truth because people have similar reasons, a strong conviction from God in response to prayer for rejecting the Book of Mormon. Here's another. Can you help me understand this? If homosexuality is truly natural, then why did nature give homosexuals bodies designed for reproductive sex with women and not men? That confuses me. Why would nature give desires for one type of sex but the body for another? Here's another. Can you clear this up for me? If partial birth abortion is morally acceptable, on what grounds do we condemn infanticide? Because it seems to me the only difference between the two is the baby's location. One partially outside the womb, partial birth abortion, and the other one completely out. And location seems irrelevant to the baby's value. Am I missing something here? Or this. Can you help me understand this, please? I'm confused. If there's absolutely no evidence for abiogenesis, you know, life coming from non-life, life arising initially from inanimate matter, and much evidence against it, how can we say Darwin's theory of evolution is a fact? What am I missing here? Give me some help. There you go. That's the softer approach. Here's a dialogue I found in the book Icons of Evolution by Jonathan Wells. It's really a sensational book dealing with that issue. And it's an example of one student's gentle use of the third step in the Colombo tactic. 
And here's the way it reads. This is a student questioning a teacher about the teaching of evolution. Teacher starts out. Okay, let's start today's lesson with a quick review. Yesterday, I talked about homology, how different organisms show remarkable similarity in the structure of some of their body parts. Homologous features, such as the vertebrate limbs shown in your textbook, provide us with some of our best evidence that living things have evolved from common ancestors. Then the student raises his hand. Uh, I know you went over this yesterday, uh, Professor, but I'm still confused. How do we know whether features are homologous or not? Teacher says, well, if you look at the vertebrate limbs, you can see that even though they're adapted to perform different functions, their bone patterns are structurally similar. Yeah, I know, but you told us yesterday that even though an octopus eye is structurally similar to a human eye, the two are not homologous. Well, that's right. Octopus and human eyes are not homologous because their common ancestor did not have such an eye. So we know that one didn't evolve from the other. So regardless of similarity, the student says, Features are not homologous unless they are inherited from a common ancestor. Yeah, now you're catching on. Student looking puzzled here. Well, actually, I'm still confused. You say homologous features provide some of our best evidence for common ancestry, but before we can tell whether the features are homologous, we have to know whether they came from a common ancestor. That's right. Well, I must be missing something. Sounds as though you're saying that we know features are derived from a common ancestor because they're derived from a common ancestor. Isn't that circular reasoning. There you go. That's a great dialogue from the book Icons of Evolution by Jonathan Wells. Now sometimes the best way to disagree with someone is not to face the issue head on, but to use a kind of indirect approach, offer an alternative, and invite a principled response. You might say, let me suggest an alternative, and you tell me if it isn't an improvement. Then you can tell me why you think your alternative is better. Is that all right? Or you might say, you know, I wouldn't characterize it quite that way. Here's what I think may be a better or more accurate way to look at it. Or, have you thought about or considered another alternative? Let me suggest one. Or, you know, I don't think that's going to work. Let me tell you why. Or, I'm not sure I agree with the way you put it. Why don't you think about this? And then suggest your alternative. Notice how I'm taking pains to be mild. This is very important in our tactical approach. The approach I just role-played there a little bit for you shows respect for the person you disagree with. Once you understand her viewpoint, you can ask, do you mind if I ask a couple questions about what you've told me? Or would you consider an alternative or be willing to look at another angle? By soliciting permission to disagree, you make the encounter a lot more amicable. You also stay in the driver's seat. Remember, the person who asks the questions controls the conversation. Now, problem. What if you get to the third step of Columbo? and you're not sure where to go next. Remember I said that the third use of Columbo generally requires that you have some kind of insight into a flaw or a difficulty or a problem with another's view. And you may find that in some conversations you don't have the resources to go further. You don't see anything. You don't know what's wrong with their view. Maybe you sense the person you're talking to is losing interest. What next? Well, nothing next then. Don't feel compelled to force the conversation. Let it go. Let the encounter die a natural death. Consider it a fruitful, interactive learning experience anyway. I mean, you've had progress. You've built relationship. you got information. You've practiced. Maybe you've gotten the other person to think a little bit about their view. Even if you've forced them to clarify it more, that's progress. You don't have to hit home runs, remember. You don't even have to get on base. Just getting up to bat will do. I'd like you to reflect for a moment on the tone of our three questions. What do you mean by that? How did you come to that conclusion? 
And then that third open-ended question, have you ever considered, can you help me with this, I'm a bit confused, whatever, and then you go into your question that exposes a flaw or weakness. These questions are engaging and conversational. They are probing but still amicable. They're friendly. They keep you in the driver's seat while the other person does all the work. That's key. Incidentally, Jesus used this tactic. He went on the offensive by asking questions. He didn't call it the Colombo tactic, but he used the tactic. Luke 20, he said, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God's. See, he started that with a question. Earlier in the chapter, Luke 20, tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? This is a question he asked of the scribes to trap them. And he trapped them very effectively, you can tell from the context. Now, there are two basic executions of the Colombo tactic. The first approach is the apparently harmless approach of Lieutenant Colombo himself, a halting, head-scratching, bumbling. And you can use a number of phrases to introduce questions that soften your approach, make it gentler, make it a little less alarming. They're Lieutenant Colombo kinds of phrases. Things like, I'm just curious. Or help me out because I'm trying to understand you on this. Or I'm a little confused on something. Or maybe you can clear this up for me. Or something about this thing bothers me. Or maybe I'm missing something, but... And go on with your question. This style is best in a college classroom or with a group of people you don't really know that well. Now, the second approach is more confrontational and more aggressive. And if you know the folks and you're more comfortable around them, then you might take this second approach. It's a technique that's similar to that used by a lawyer in a courtroom. Remember, a lawyer always has to ask questions, right? And his questions are somewhat leading questions, aren't they? Now, the important rule here with a lawyer is that the attorney never asks a question he doesn't know the answer to, right? So when I use Columbo in this more aggressive fashion, I have a goal in mind. I'm asking specific questions that will legitimately get the other person to dig his own grave. I want to point out his flaw. I want to get him to see that. How can you improve your Columbo skill? Very easily, three simple steps. Step one, anticipate. Step two, reflect. And step three, practice. You know, initially, you're not going to be quick on your feet with the kind of responses maybe that you've seen as illustrations here in our training. Your best ideas are going to come when the pressure is off. And when the pressure is off is the perfect time to focus on improving technique. The pressure is off at two different times, before an encounter and after an encounter. So the first thing you want to do is try to anticipate objections and think of questions in advance. Work on an issue or a question that has stumped you in the past. Then brainstorm. Think of questions that will help put you in the driver's seat in those conversations. Remember, a question mark is shaped like a fish hook. You want to use questions like a hook. Now, this advanced preparation takes work, but it can be really effective. Trust me. And the next time you're asked those particular questions, you're going to have your responses at your fingertips. By the way, I do this all the time. I anticipate in advance. I also do the second thing. First, I anticipate. Secondly, I reflect on questions I might have asked. Right after each encounter is a great time for self-assessment. You can think about what you might have said. You can determine how you could have phrased questions more effectively or maneuvered through the conversation differently. Now the pressure's off. Other alternatives are going to occur to you. Write them down and review them. This is not a hard thing to do. It can be a lot of fun, too. It prepares you for the next opportunity, and it puts new ideas right at your fingertips next time around.
It can become second nature when you get into the routine of it. So we improve our Colombo skill by anticipating, by reflecting, and then the third thing, by practicing. We practice the questions and the possible rejoinders out loud. Practice increases your practical experience. It places you in the actual dialogue, but you're in a safe environment while you're doing it. This will allow you to anticipate turns that the new tack might take and anticipate how you might respond to those possible rejoinders. And this is why it's good to have a friend along. You can role play it with your friend. Practice prepares you for those encounters. If you practice in advance, when the issues come up, you'll be ready. This really works. Trust me on this. I do it all the time. When the issues come up in the future, you've already rehearsed your response. It's the way political candidates prepare for televised debates. It's the way I prepare for debates. When I have to be in a tough situation on TV or radio, I anticipate what the challenges are going to be, what the questions are going to be, and I think of my answers in advance. And I practice them, and I role play them, and I interact with other people. Then when I'm on the spot, I don't have to be clever. I don't have to be quick on my feet. I've done my homework. I'm ready. Let me give you a couple of examples about how I did this. That is how I reflected back on an encounter I had and thought of some new ways I could do things. I talked to you in the very first session about the witch in Wisconsin. It was my opening illustration. Remember, we talked about the abortion issue, and she referred to abortion as killing babies, but she basically said women should have that liberty. Well, after I was done getting our groceries, we went by her again, and she was just closing up, and we waved at her, my wife and I, and she said, have a nice day. And we went out to the parking lot, and we started to unload our groceries, and I got to thinking about what she'd said, and also thinking about my own technique and wondering how I could have improved what I said. It suddenly occurred to me, she said, have a nice day. Now, what's unusual about that? Well, she just said that it was okay to kill babies. And then she said, have a nice day. It occurred to me that I could go up to her and point out how odd it is that she said, have a nice day, in light of what she had just been telling me about killing babies. I could have said, what if I told you it was okay to burn witches, and then said, have a nice day. Now, I don't know, that might have not won the day or anything, but it would have moved things along a little bit more. Remember that illustration that I gave you about to being in that actor's home, that comedian's home, and talking with his wife about animal rights? Well, just as we finished that evening, I was leaving, I was saying goodbye to everybody, and I said, let me ask you one last question. I said, are you pro-life or pro-abortion? I always ask that question of people I talk to about animal rights. And she said, I'm pro-abortion. And then she said, I don't believe any unwanted children should be allowed to come into the world. I said, okay, I've got my answer, got a little information. I made my manners and left. As I was driving home, I thought to myself, gee, I wish I could have taken it a little further. I wish I could have said a little bit more. What could I have said that would have gotten me a little bit more distance in the conversation? And then it occurred to me. Then I realized that her response was actually pretty weak. She said, I don't believe any unwanted children should be allowed to come into the world. Well, this may be a legitimate reason for birth control, but in abortion, the child is already in the world, so to speak. The human being already exists, though hidden from view inside his mother's womb. He's still there. And this is the weakness of her view that needed to be exploited with a Columbo question. Now, if I were in the same situation, I would ask this question. Do you think children ought to be allowed to stay in the world if they are unwanted? Now, I suspect she would have certainly said yes, 
don't kill the children. And then I could have responded, if so, then the issue for abortion isn't whether the child is unwanted or not, but whether mom already has a child when she's pregnant. Isn't that right? While back I was on a TV show in Toronto, it was a one-hour-long program called Test of Faith, and I was being challenged because I did not believe that all religions were legitimate routes to God. One of those that were challenging me was a Sikh who dismissed my view because my view was represented by only a very, very small group of Christians. Now, I didn't respond to that. There were other things that were happening, but I did think about it after I left, and I got to thinking, gee, how could I have responded to that, and therefore how will I respond to it in the future if that comes up again? There's a couple of things wrong with that challenge. One, even if I'm part of a very small group, it doesn't make my view wrong. Secondly, even if it were true that nowadays only a small group of Christians believe that Jesus is the only way, historically it has been the standard position of the church for thousands of years, so a large number of Christians have actually believed that over history. But the irony is, is this challenge is coming from a Sikh. Sikhism is one of the smallest of the world religions. So I might have said to the Sikh in that situation, are you saying that because my group is small, our views must be false? Okay, there's a question. Okay, remember, it's not enough to prepare, as we've been talking about here. You've got to engage. Interacting with others face-to-face -face is the most effective way to improve your abilities. Now, a word of caution. Once you learn the Colombo tactic, you're going to realize how few people can answer for their views. It's easy, once you see this happen, to drift into a little bit of a pride attitude and take pleasure in another person's failings, especially at your hand. Therefore, I want you to be careful to show concern for the other person. Establish common ground wherever possible by affirming points of agreement. I just recently had a TV debate with Deepak Chopra, who is probably the world's number one New Age guru. He sold millions of books. But I look for every opportunity in that debate to say I agree with Deepak Chopra. Now, what happens when your opponent uses the Colombo tactic against you? What happens when he's asking you questions that you sense are meant to trap you in some weakness he perceives in your view? Now that you know about the Colombo tactic, you're going to recognize it when somebody's coming after you using that tactic. Now what are you going to do? Well, you can protect yourself very easily by using the following two steps. Listen carefully. First, you stop the advance. Don't let your opponent set you up with leading questions. You can politely respond by simply saying, you know, I'd rather not answer a lot of questions, but I do want to know what you think. So instead of explaining your view by asking questions, why don't you just tell me? Tell me what you believe and why you believe it, and then let me think about it. Once again, start with Colombo question one. State your point clearly so I don't misunderstand it. What do you believe? Then move to Colombo question number two. Give me your specific reasons for holding the view. And then either move to the third step of Colombo and ask questions that might exploit the view, or you employ your hot seat maneuver and say, let me think about it for a while. These two steps will keep you out of trouble. You don't have to play the Colombo game with them if you don't want to. By the way, some people say to me, well, what if somebody said that to you? I said, then I wouldn't play the Colombo game. I'd answer their questions. I'd tell them what I believe, and I'd give them my reasons. I lose a little bit of a tactical advantage, but I don't mind being straightforward. What you want to do when they're doing that to you is you want to take the tactical advantage away from them. 
get back into control of the conversation. Let me close with this illustration. It's a conversation that I had with a waitress in Seattle a number of years ago. I was at a conference there, and there were a lot of conferees that were pouring into all the restaurants in the vicinity. And so there was a lot of theological buzz in the air, and I'm sure that the waitresses and waiters were picking up on it. And so I wanted to use that as a pretext for a conversation. And in fact, I did get into a conversation in that very way with a waitress. And in the process of talking about this, I got the idea that this woman was very supportive of religion. It was clear, but in kind of in a pluralistic way, like all religions are cool as long as you don't think your religion is the right way, you know, kind of thing. And I didn't want her to think that I thought the way she did on this. And so I tossed out this one-liner. I mentioned that the reason that I go to conferences like this is that when it comes to religion, people believe a lot of very foolish things. And she immediately changed her demeanor. A cloud came over her face. She leaned over the table and said, that's oppressive. Not letting people believe what they want to believe. Now, notice something. All I did was say that some views were foolish. I didn't even say which ones. And she took that as a violation of her personal liberty. I'm an oppressor, not letting people believe what they want to believe. But I simply asked her a question. I said, do you think I'm wrong then? Now that caught her by surprise. She didn't want to be intolerant, so she said, no, no, I'm just trying to understand your view. I don't think you're wrong. Now this was dishonest. In fact, I said that. I said, I'll be honest, admit it. You think I'm wrong. I was chuckling. I said, that's okay. It doesn't bother me. And then I pointed out, if I'm not wrong, then why are you correcting me? And if you think I am wrong, then why are you oppressing me? By the way, notice that's a question. Well, she ignored my question. She paused to regroup for a moment and then continued. She said, well, all religions are basically the same after all. Note what she did. She's doing what? She's making a claim. Okay, so I respond with a question that puts the burden of proof back on her. She says all religions are basically the same. I say, oh, really, in what way? Now, I didn't say, no, they're not. Here's why. Instead, I used a Columbo question to shift the burden of proof. And my question had a remarkable effect on her. Her jaw fell slack. Her face went blank. And she just said, uh, she didn't know what to say. She'd gotten away with things like that so many times before, I presume, that she wasn't prepared to answer or defend her own assertion. So I said to her, well, let's think about it a minute. Judaism teaches that Jesus is not the Messiah and Christianity teaches he is, right? Yes. Jesus either is the Messiah or he's not, right? Yes. Then either the Jews are right and the Christians are wrong, or the Christians are right and the Jews are wrong, but under no circumstances can they both be right. They can't both be basically the same, right? Silence for a few moments then. She ignored my question, regrouped, and said, well, no one can ever know the truth about religion. Now notice in her response she did not address the question I'd asked her. She changed the topic. But when she changed the topic, she did something else. What did she do? She made another assertion. And if she makes an assertion, whose job is it to defend the assertion? Her job. So I asked another question. When she said, no one can ever know the truth of religion, another claim, I said, why would you believe a thing like that? Columbo question. This is a turnabout. This is the kind of question non-Christians ask Christians. And she was not prepared for that. In fact, her response was very evasive. She said, the Bible's been changed and translated and retranslated so many times over the centuries you can't trust it. That didn't answer my question. 
But what did she do? She offered another claim. And if she offers a claim, she bears the burden, and I placed the burden on her. In fact, my question was, really, how do you know that? Did you study textual criticism? Textual criticism is the field that assesses whether manuscripts have been corrupted in the process of copying and recopying. She hadn't. I had. I knew that they hadn't been corrupted, but she was just talking off the top of her head, and she's gotten away with it before no one's ever challenged her until that evening. Now, eventually, she got a little uneasy. She says, well, I feel like you're trying to back me into a corner. And I said, well, whatever, you know, and I kind of left her alone, and I left her a big tip. I also sent her some material because I got the address of the restaurant. But notice what was going on here. I wasn't trying to be unkind or bully her intellectually. I challenged her politely with fair questions, and she felt trapped. And that's what fair Columbo questioning does. It backs you into the narrow corridor of truth. By the way, how did that conversation start? As I recall, the waitress was claiming that I was oppressive. So who was trying to make who feel bad? But I didn't point that out either, by the way. I let it lie. But that's the power of Columbo. You go on the offensive in a disarming way with carefully selected questions to productively advance the conversation. You use Columbo to accomplish three broad purposes, to gather information, to reverse the burden of proof, or to exploit a weakness or a flaw. Now, what main points did we cover this session? First, we looked at the third use of the Columbo tactic, exploiting a flaw or a weakness in another person's view. I taught you to listen carefully to the reasons given to the second Columbo question, how did you come to that conclusion, and then ask yourself if the conclusions follow from the evidence. Do the walls hold up the roof? Then I said, point out errors with questions rather than statements. The second thing we learned were the three specific ways to improve your Columbo skill. First, anticipate objections and think of questions in advance. If you don't do that, then do so afterwards. Reflect on the questions you might have asked. Then write these things down and practice them. Practice your new questions. Think of potential responses to your questions and then think of more responses to those things and do this out loud. Do it with another person if you can. The third thing we learned was how to defend against the Colombo tactic when someone uses it against us. First, you stop the advance by refusing to play the Colombo game, but you do so nicely. I'm not going to answer your questions. Why don't you just tell me? Second, you regain control by asking your opponent to simply make her point directly and give reasons for it so that you can consider the view. Now, here's what I want you to do this week. I haven't asked anything of you so far, but I want you to go out and practice some of this. I want you to look for opportunities to hone your Columbo skills. Use the first two questions, what do you mean by that and how did you come to that conclusion, to navigate in conversations. If you feel comfortable, use further questions to gently challenge points of weaknesses you see. And if you're stumped, let the issue go for the time. Brainstorm possible responses later. Work with another Christian. Practice. You know, you might even get a couple of friends of yours and introduce them to the three uses of the Colombo tactic. In other words, teach them how to do what you're learning in this tape. Describe the main idea of each question. Describe your reasons for using them. Then explain how they can improve their Colombo skill and defend against it when someone uses it on them. Basically, take the things that you've learned so far and be a teacher to another student. That's one of the best ways that you could learn this material.